0: We just hit a huge milestone, it's the, it's the 3,558 YouTube subscriber special AMA. So ask me a question in the comments and I will answer it. So I recorded my responses to these when I could because it feels like I've been working a lot lately and I haven't had any time to talk about philosophy or any cool stuff. So I recorded responses, you know, an hour here, an hour there, whenever I could. So if my appearance suddenly changes or the time of day changes, you'll know what's going on. So I'm just going to go in order here. Any general thoughts slash impressions on Eric Steinhardt's atheistic Platonism or the idea in general? I've been really trying to branch out and look at atheistic worldviews that aren't physicalism, naturalism, deterministic, etc. And his philosophy seems interesting, if nothing else. And that is from JDay205. Um, Yeah, my general thoughts. Thumbs up. (laughs) Um, That's my very general thought. It's just it's very different from the kind of paradigm that I'm currently operating on. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but Eric Steinhardt is, is great. Um, he wrote a book on Nietzsche that I really enjoyed. Um, Darren asks, why are you gay? Who says I'm gay? You are gay. Ryan asks, hi, Emerson, I have two questions for you. One, are you still a naturalist or have you given up on that due to arguments against naturalism and metaethics? And two, are you the kind of compatibilist that believes in the principle of alternative possibilities? the bad kind, or do you like source compatibilism, the good kind, instead? So naturalism, um, I, so the the arguments against naturalism and meta-ethics don't really bear on it. Like, I, I still consider myself a naturalist, but like only in a really liberal sense. So I like Felipe Leon's way of um, organizing this, where you've got conservative, moderate, and liberal naturalists. Conservative naturalists basically just believe in the concreta you know, the concrete objects of physical science, so like electrons, and, you know, the kinds of things that science tells us about those concrete objects, and that's it. And moderate naturalists believe in that, and also abstract objects, like, uh, you know, numbers and propositions and uh, possibly, you know, irreducibly normative truths. But yeah, I, I mean, the liberal naturalist believes in um, abstracta, and also concreta that are not, you know, given to us by physical science directly. So, like, as a Rosalian monist, then I would think that, you know, the 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 non-relational intrinsic nature of the physical structure that science tells us about. Well, that's concrete. Uh, that physical science doesn't really get at. You know, so I think that would put me in the liberal the liberal naturalist camp. Um, even though it's tricky because Rosalians believe that the information we get from physics is pretty abstract. It's like mathematical gnomic vocabulary and description. So because physics and physical science is so mathematical, then to the extent that we think mathematics abstracts away from a concrete world, we should think that physics abstracts away from the concrete world. So there has to be something concrete that underlies the rules and equations that are given to us by physical science. That's the Rosalian position. And, uh, you know, those of you who are more familiar with my views know where I end up taking that. I mean, I used to feel like really sentimental about the term naturalism and like being a naturalist. And uh, I don't feel that as strongly now, but I can still get in that mindset. Like, especially when I look at um, like the transcendentalists, you know, like they talked about naturalism sometimes, you know, like Emerson had the, you know, the other, the lesser Emerson had some, some passage where he, you know, he wrote like, you know, I continually say like, I'm caught in this strange state of mind and I continually say I will be a naturalist. And like, I kind of relate to, you know, understand what he was trying to articulate. And like I said, I feel kind of sentimental about the term naturalism and like being a naturalist sometimes. Um, And other times, I just really don't care. (laughs) Um, So I, I still consider myself a naturalist. Um, but I've moved across the uh, spectrum from the conservative to liberal side, and you know when I feel like I don't care, it's because people get so hung up on defining it that it just becomes extremely tedious. And I think that when I, I don't think our concepts have sharp lines dividing them up, you know, so I, I just don't think that it matters that we can't really identify these like universally agreed upon set of necessary and sufficient conditions, you know, to to define naturalism. I think we know what it means roughly speaking and that's enough. But I just don't think that like the most boring philosophers who ever wrote anything down in the 20th century should have a monopoly on how we use the term naturalism. You know, like like I said the transcendentalists also use that term. Why do they not have some say in like how it's used? Why is it just like very boring analytic philosophers from the later half of the 20th century that get to decide how we use the term yeah because for those who don't know like naturalism in analytic philosophy it's more precise but it's also just like so restrictive and it's like it's almost it's like really close to scientism that just seems weird to me why would that be the whole of naturalism so the second question are you the kind of compatibilist that believes in the principle of alternative possibilities or do you like source compatibilism so I guess I'm kind of inconsistent on this in some ways because I think that um, there are some thought experiments or just, you know, stories from real life that seem to show that alternative possibilities in the sense that the incompatibilist wants, that's not really necessary for responsibility and feeling like it's appropriate to say, well, they did that of their own free will. So Dan Dennett has this passage about Martin Luther, where Luther says, I can do no other, when he was told to recant. My conscience compels me to do this and whatever, I can do no other. And what Dennett says, which was a really great insight, I think, is that whatever Luther was trying to do, he was not trying to duck responsibility. So Luther is saying, I can do no other. (laughs) Like he's telling us, there are no alternative possibilities. and uh, he's saying like, look, this is only going to unfold one way. Okay. And yet it seems as if he is responsible. You know, he is doing something of his own free will. Does it feel right to say that he didn't do that of his own free will? Because there aren't alternative possibilities in this really robust sense that the incompatibilist demands? Well, no. And then there are also obviously um, Frankfurt cases where you have some kind of like over-determining cause, like where someone freely chooses to do something, but because of some malevolent actor, um, they couldn't have done otherwise. So like, you're going to vote for a Democrat, you freely cho- you freely choose to vote for a Democrat, um, but unbeknownst to you, you know, there's a neuroscientist who put something in your head. So if you tried to vote for anything other than a Democrat, it would kick in and you would vote for a Democrat, but it didn't have to kick in because you just voted for a Democrat. So you couldn't have done otherwise, and yet you are still responsible. So the thing about those kinds of thought experiments, I mean, I like Dennett's more, but you know, Frankfurt cases and you can, you can give other real life cases or thought experiments that seem to show that alternative possibilities are not a necessary condition for doing something of your own free will. On the other hand, surely I am more free if I have more options available to me if i can do more things i'm freer in some sense than if i had very restricted you know like options open to me. like there were only like two paths as opposed to 15 paths in front of me like surely that matters you know so i mean i get the like it's not like i think all these philosophers who talk about alternative possibilities have just been delusional this whole time turns out that has nothing to do with free will um, so yeah, I mean, I do think that alternative possibilities matter, like it it just seems as if I'm more free if I have, you know, a greater number of possibilities in front of me, and I'm less free if I have fewer possibilities in front of me. And the more robust, I guess, those possibilities are, um, like if they are just epistemic possibilities, then I think that that's enough to give us a substantive notion of alternative possibilities. But if there's more than that, then it seems like we're even more free. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I, you know, but on the, you know, on the other hand, the source compatibilists do make a ton of sense to me as well. So I don't know if I'm just inconsistent on this. I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm a compatibilist, but um, as to what kind of compatibilist I am, I guess I don't know. So Darren's coming in with the second question. If I settled your debt, would you become a metaphysical libertarian? So Yes, if you settle the $420,069 of debt that I've incurred to Dennis Prager personally, then I will believe in libertarian free will. I, I mean, doxastic volunteerism is true, that much we can be sure of, and I will just choose to believe in libertarian free will if you settle my debt. I mean, who wouldn't take that deal? I'm in crippling student debt. Um, so Dylan asks, what's your biggest gripe with physicalism? Um, I guess not being able to explain consciousness is my biggest gripe with physicalism. Yeah, I mean there are other there are there are argue there are multiple arguments against physicalism, but I guess just the ones that are based on qualia or phenomenal consciousness, like those are the ones that um, pull me away from physicalism. Those are the ones that pulled me away from physicalism. In fact. Um, But, you know, people make arguments like from reason, personal identity, I feel like is not only a good argument against physicalism, but like a good positive argument for dualism. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, people make spookier arguments like Dale Allison makes arguments against materialism in the book that I interviewed him about, um, Encountering Mystery. And uh, yeah, I mean, he makes it explicit that his target is productive materialism in many cases where he just thinks there are phenomena that can't be explained materialistically and you know they all have to do with consciousness basically or some parapsychological phenomena but yeah i mean the thing that like my the thing that pulled me away from physicalism and keeps me away from it is just phenomenal consciousness speaking of that by the way i have been reading chapter four of philip goff's book consciousness and fundamental reality it's like it's fantastic like it's like he's talking about conceivability arguments, I got interested in conceivability arguments. And I I kind of went back to the PDF that I have of that book. And I tried reading this book like three or four years ago. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about. Like, I just wasn't in depth enough into philosophy of mind to really even appreciate what was going on. And then when I came back to it a few weeks ago, like, I mean, it's spectacular stuff. It's it's so good. So um, it's really in-depth. It is not for people who are, like, new to this topic. So if you're looking for, like, something more substantive that, like, goes really deep into philosophy of mind, then, yeah, definitely check out Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. And specifically, I've been reading chapter four. Um, You know, it's it's arguments against physicalism, but it's specifically the conceivability argument. And, you know, his criticism of David Chalmers' two-dimensional semantics, his own alternative, and... know his own take on conceivability arguments and why they collapse into a subtly different argument that makes conceivability arguments kind of redundant but i mean it's just really good it's like i said spectacular stuff you should read it um crab king asks regarding the abortion debate when do you think personhood full moral status begins oh that's a super easy trivial question uh sometime between conception and birth (laughs) um Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, i it's hard for me to, like, sum up my position very briefly because I have internalized the fact that there are no sharp lines and there are just these messy, fuzzy borders when it comes to not only our concepts, perhaps less obviously our concepts, but, you know, there aren't really a lot of sharp lines in biology. Like, for example, there was no first human. Um, The lines between species are, you know, hard to discern. So I think like a similar kind of question could be like, well, you know, when do you think the first human came into existence? Like, you know, when did humanity begin specifically? And it's like, okay, well, there's not a first human, there's not a sharp line that demarcates not a human and a human. And I think the same thing is true of personhood. So there is going to be not a sharp line, but a vague fuzzy area Where you transition from non-personhood to personhood and it's not good and again this is not like some weird special pleading kind of thing like most of biology is like this you know so i think the the analogy of um species and evolution is a good one so like you know there being no first human i think is a helpful way of thinking about this so i don't know exactly when it happens but i don't think there is an exact point when it happens most likely so i think this kind of vagueness and fuzziness And, you know, the fact that even something like persons admit of borderline cases, I just I don't think that that's out of the ordinary. I don't think that's anomalous. But if someone doesn't already know that or believe that at least, then it's hard to, like, quickly communicate. Yeah. So I I feel like pro-life advocates, they get a lot of mileage out of the fact that there's no bright line. And that no matter what, there's going to be some kind of convention involved, you know, because I mean, legally, we do need some kind of sharp line, just like we have, you know, 18 years old or 16 years old or 21 years old. I mean, everyone knows there's not like some magical transition that happens, you know, around midnight, but like legally for those kinds of, you know, social purposes, we need to have some sharp line and it's going to be a convention. It is going to feel a little bit arbitrary. No matter where we put it but that doesn't mean that there's like no difference between a minor you know and someone who's an adult i know that uh i'm fairly like i don't feel uneasy about abortions that happen in the first trimester and as time goes on i feel progressively uneasy and um yeah by the time you get to the late term ones i feel distinctly uneasy (laughs) um so I'm not like a uh, anytime for any reason kind of guy. And I guess part of that is because I can't really see a principled difference between a very late term abortion a day before birth versus like, you know, infanticide. Um, infanticide seems like it's definitely bad. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I feel like I should be against infanticide. <laughs> um, and uh, it seems like if I'm going to be for any time, Any reason that it feels like that would commit me to endorsing infanticide. I can't think of a principled way, most I haven't seen a principled way that I find convincing to say, well, infanticide, no way. And, uh, you know, 15 minutes before birth, totally fine. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think there is a sharp line when it becomes morally like impermissible. But uh, I know that we need a sharp conventional line. And I know that I feel progressively uneasy as the pregnancy goes on. And, um, I guess, uh, so I have this book called Applied Ethics that is a, it has this very even-handed chapter about abortion that I would highly recommend. And there was a debate between Dustin Crummett and Trent Horn. So, I mean, watch that debate. It's a fantastic defense of the pro-choice side of things. So if you want like a, you know, way more intelligent discussion of this kind of thing, then listen to that debate between Trent Horn and uh, Dustin Crum. I believe that happened on the majesty of reason. Okay. AJR throwaway asks, do twinks make better philosophers? Which Western philosopher was the twinkiest? My pick is Kierkegaard. Well, I mean, I completely concur with the point about Kierkegaard. Um, he probably, yeah, I mean, I actually, yeah, that's my pick too. Um, but do twinks make better philosophers? I mean, is there, when you consider the twink physiognomy, is there some kind of intellectual correlation between the twink physiognomy and being a great philosopher? I don't know. That's ultimately an empirical question. So John Comancho asks, are there any positions in philosophy you're agnostic on? I'm a... Uh, agnostic about scientific realism versus anti-realism um and i guess some of that has to do with just Kane b and just the videos that he's made about it just have kind of pulled me in that direction i guess but yeah it's just it's one of those topics i've never really talked about um on the podcast but like yeah i mean i can really see the case for scientific anti-realism and then sometimes you like kind of pick your head up from the page for a second and you're like wait what <laughs> like like no, no, it's surely scientific realism. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I've just I'm ultimately agnostic about it, but I can like I can see the reasons, you know, for and against. As time goes on, it's not just that like there's a short list of things I'm pretty confident in. There are things that I sound confident in, but that opinion is kind of provisional. You know, it's not like I've it's not like I sit around reading entire books, you know, paper after paper about that topic. But like the things that I'm like more explicitly agnostic about, it does seem like that list has grown over time. Like the more I've looked into philosophy and the more I've like studied it, the more agnostic I've become about a greater number of issues. I have like a an opinion, but it's, it's just hard for me to like really land on something like, oh yeah, conceptualism is definitely true as opposed to a really interesting idea that has certain advantages, you know, Platonism trivially true um yeah it's just it's hard for me to have like that degree of confidence um, in like i don't know most things dylan clap asks why are you such a sucker for spooky stuff <laughs> well why are you such a sucker for non-spooky stuff <laughs> no um i mean like i, I want to answer that but at the same time it's like if we're gonna put me in the uh you know on the couch, you know, on Freud's couch, and we're going to start thinking about all the causes that might, you know, lead to me being attracted to spooky stuff. It's like, I could probably come up with like a halfway plausible sounding story about like, how did this happen? Exactly. Um, I could also give a more first order story where it's like, well, look, here are the intellectual considerations that have led me to look seriously into things that most people don't look seriously into. Um, But look, I mean, I can play, the thing about psychoanalysis is you can do it to anybody for anything. You know, if you're like a skeptically inclined person, you know, a more materialistically inclined person, then uh, I can psycho, I can come up with a halfway plausible sounding psychoanalysis of why you like that kind of thing and why you don't like spooky stuff. So I'm just saying like, this is not only available to one particular side of one particular issue if you want to play that game, then you can come up with plausible sounding psychoanalytic explanations of why you like spooky stuff or why you hate spooky stuff and why you like more materialistic sounding stuff. But I mean, to actually answer the question, like, and the only way I really can, which is just kind of outline the intellectual considerations as I see them, you know. Um, so like, I, I just think that one particular philosophical strategy has not served me well in my life so when i was like a teenager i would do this thing where i would say well look this particular subject that i don't really know that much about is in conflict with my pre-existing worldview and i'm very confident in my pre-existing worldview so at that time it's like well i'm very confident that christianity is true very confident that being a christian means believing in young earth creationism so I don't know about evolution, I don't know about carbon dating, but it's in conflict with this other thing that I have a high credence in. Then when I deconverted, it's like, you can look at something like, you know, like I, re- I remember a friend telling me a ghost story and I was like, well, that can't possibly be right because that's, if that were veridical, then it would be in conflict with materialism. And I'm extremely confident that materialism is true. Because there are all these correlations between the brain and the mind, so there can't be ghosts. So, um, it's like I don't even need to like take this story really, really seriously. And I'm saying like that kind of strategy has just not served me well. <laughs> like this kind of like, oh, I already know what the right answer is. I have this pre-existing ontology. I have this pre-existing worldview, and when new information comes in, I'm just gonna say that can't possibly be what it seems like because it's in conflict with, my current worldview. Okay. Well, like I said, I just don't feel like that has served me very well. And maybe a more rational way of approaching things is just on a more case by case basis. And don't really worry about internal consistency. Like don't worry about, you know, not contradicting what you said a week ago, like just approach this new information in good faith and don't like, I mean, it's uh, on some level, this is, it's impossible to just look at everything in a vacuum. I'm not, even suggesting that you can do that. I'm just saying that you shouldn't be so confident ruling something out before you look into it, be, just because it's in conflict with something that you think is well supported. I, I made a video, It was it's like very unfocused, I really should make like a shorter version of it or something, but I talked about why I became disillusioned with the skeptic community. A huge part of it was like uh, conspiracy theories, like just for various reasons, I wanted to learn more about some of these, you know, crazy sounding things that people were saying. And what I found was that skeptics had like misrepresented to me what conspiracy theorists, in fact, believe that was like one particular catalyst. And also philosophy of religion was pretty big as well, because the skeptic community is predominantly atheistic and uh, their reasons for atheism or against theism are just really bad and superficial. so anyway, there were there were just there were a few things that kind of nudged me into this direction where um it was just like one time too many where I thought you know it's it's like I was doing this weird morian shifting away from things that I hadn't looked into because it was in conflict with something that I was already kind of confident of. But like, you really should reserve the Mauryan shift for, um, I mean, I could be misre- mis- mis- misremembering, but I think Philippe León gives this category of like Mauryan facts, which is like, I have two hands. Okay, so like, um, you're not supposed to just Mauryan shift your way around the world constantly. And I actually talked about the Mauryan shift in this section called the skeptics error in, um, it's like four thing- uh, four things I learned about epistemology. <laughs> I couldn't remember how many things because the number was changing. It was supposed to be seven, but I'm lazy. So it eventually went down to four. I mean, I'm also kind of a sucker for spooky stuff because spooky stuff has happened to me. Like, this is what Dale Allison was talking about, where he's like, look, it's not like I'm just sitting here, like reading papers or something. Like, just stuff continues happening to me and people in my family to the point where, yeah, I believe in spookier stuff because spookier stuff has happened to me. He has this uh, passage in that book about Carl Sagan's slogan, Um, or I think it was, you know, I mean, earlier people said it, but who cares? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And what Dr. Allison said was like, he basically made the same point that I've made. And, you know, Joe Schmidt has made a million times about the person dependence of justification. So here's the passage from Dale Allison. Carl Sagan, echoing others before him, famously said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But the word extraordinary is not a fixed measure. It is rather relative to one's other beliefs what is extraordinary for one may not be so for another, or at least much less so. Our sense of what can or cannot happen inevitably reflects what has or has not happened to us personally. This in part explains why I hold some beliefs Carl Sagan did not. So yeah, I mean, we occupy different positions on the grand epistemic landscape. We have different intuitions, we know different things, we've read different books, we've watched different videos, um, and just different things have happened to us. (laughs) So like, I mean, the very general answer is just because of my position on the grand epistemic landscape. Or maybe it has something to do with um, my childhood. I don't know. (laughs) But like I said, that psychoanalytic stuff, it goes both ways. But yeah, I mean, just because people are going to ask, I guess it's hard to talk about the spooky things that have happened to you. It's embarrassing people. Well, I mean, look, I'm just gonna throw a couple things out there, just that have happened to me. And I, I am aware that there are like, more or less skeptical interpretations, explanations, whatever, of the things that I'll say. But um, I'm not trying to defend any particular interpretation. I'm just saying there are weird things that have happened to me. So some people talk about sleep paralysis as like a weird experience. And I mean, that was just a normal part of my life for three or four nights out of the week for a few years, um, starting when I was around 18 or 19. And it, it went on for a few years. You know, I mean, like, so all the stories that go along with sleep paralysis, yeah, like all that kind of stuff happened to me, like regularly, on a regular basis, like the majority of the nights out of the week, you know, uh, it mercifully went away around, I don't know, like 22 or 23. Um, but yeah, man, it it sucked. <laughs> like, it was mostly unpleasant. Um, there was also, okay, so in Dale Allison's book, there's this chapter, um, it's called Terror from Nowhere, or at least that's part of the chapter name. But like, that's I mean this is a whole other thing it's if you read that chapter you'll get kind of a gist of something that happened to me that was again extremely unpleasant it lasted for a long time and i'll you know i will talk about it at some point it's just uh, it's really difficult to write about uh, i mean there was another time when i i kind of just intuitively knew where my wife was when she needed my help like she was in a place she had never been i had never been there and uh, I just had very vague general information about where she was, about the general area. And I've kind of tried to calculate this. It's like the odds are really, really small that I would have found her on my first try. You know, she's, again, in a place that she had never been, that I'd never been. It's a part of town I'd never been, down a street that I'd never been on. And it's like the odds that I would guess it on the first try are fairly low. They're not astronomically low, but they're low. The thing that is interesting though is that I had this subjective sense that I knew where she was and that I would find her like like I there was just a certain calm assurance, I guess. Like I just I knew where she was. I felt like I knew where she was. And it's the subjective sense of knowing that is interesting. It's not just that I happened to guess the right answer on the first try. It was that I felt like I knew I was going to do that. And I think I actually did mention this when I was talking to Dr. Allison, I, I did mention a lot of this to him um, off air, but um, I think on air I did mention the fact that uh, my younger brother and I had identical dreams on the same night when we were in Yosemite um, just this summer. I'm not trying to defend any particular interpretation. I'm just saying there are weird things that have happened to me that probably haven't happened to you know other people. So, like when I was a kid, I saw something levitating for several seconds you know like it just saw it straight on and i was terrified and i ran away so i mean that's just like a, a sampling where i just say like you know i feel like it, it um reifies dr Allison's point yeah look i mean i regardless of of all the other you know intellectual considerations or you know development over time just the the things that have happened to me my life experiences do play a role in shaping what I'm open to and what I look seriously into. This is kind of like a generic thing you could say about anything, but like the universe is really weird and I just, I don't think we have it all figured out. And uh, I just don't think we should be closed off beforehand and think a priori, I already know what the universe is like. I already know how it's gonna turn out. I already basically know what the right answer is. So there's no need for me to be open-minded about all kinds of things. So. I just don't think that's a good way of going about it. <laughs> um, first of all, it's no fun. And second of all, it's, I, I just don't think it is likely to lead you to the right answers. So jack to square one asks, I really want to know how we can hear more of the excellent guitar music that accompanies your easily debunkable theological and philosophical content. Uh, yeah, that's a cheek dog. I mean, um, yeah, if you don't know who he is, definitely look him up. He's got a massive YouTube channel now, but it was relatively small i mean still a few hundred thousand subscribers when i found him but man i love listening to him i've probably spent collectively like days listening to um i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right chica nito yeah i-c-h-i-k-a-n-i-t-o um yeah he's like a japanese guitarist and uh i think he's japanese but anyway he rocks um loved him for years if you guys know polyphia I mean, they seem to be like more famous on some level. people know who they are. But anyway, it's it's like that. But yeah, and I feel like what I do is legal on the podcast. Um, that's my general vibe. That's my legal opinion is that it feels like it's OK, probably um, because I didn't just rip it off of YouTube or something like I went to his website and he sells packs of loops and you can like sample it or something, you know, lo fi beats to study slash relax to or that kind of thing. So that's what I, I bought the pack of loops, and I just use those for transitions. Is that not? I have no idea. I've been YouTube. I mean, like YouTube has demonetized stuff before because of it. But I don't know. I pay, I look, I paid for a thing. I didn't just download an MP3. You know, like he put out this like file of uh, things to be sampled and uh, used. So it is ultimately just uh, I use it because I love his his music. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it's great. So check him out. Beatles with Haz asks, "What is some of your favorite music?" And Hayden adds, um, "I also wondered if that was Ichika playing guitar in his intro music." Emerson likes math rock. Confirmed. Um, yeah, well that is Ichika, and I do like math rock actually. I mean I don't have I'm, I don't have like a deep knowledge of the genre or anything, but like I um I like those little clips that pop up on YouTube. <laughs> but yeah, and also like that like Midwest emo stuff like I, I again I don't don't tell me about your favorite band or whatever because I don't know what it is but I've never heard of them but I it's just YouTube gives me these clips you know math rock and like Midwest emo or whatever um, and it's awesome <laughs> like I really really love it I really like John Mayer and vampire weekend and the killers um, Reliant K huge fan never stopped being a fan. <laughs> um Hang on, let me pull up Spotify so I can see. Okay, well, you know, I mean, the, the Spotify is not going to lie. It was like the repeat, rewind, and um, most played, and that kind of thing. So I'm seeing a lot of Weezer, Jack Johnson, Foster the People, 21 Pilots, Lion K, White Stripes, Polyphia, Mac DeMarco, Taylor Swift, a lot of Taylor Swift um wheeler walker jr um john carpenter nice lana del rey a lot of lana del rey oh my god and uh alex g arctic monkeys men i trust beastie boys that's enough of that have i embarrassed myself sufficiently now for you people i'm just a dancing monkey for you okay um uh nick asks who are some of your favorite philosophers from the eastern philosophical traditions i mean i'm pretty ignorant of eastern philosophical traditions so i don't have a fantastic answer for that yeah sorry i mean yeah i mean if you recommend anybody there's this one guy who everyone recommends his his name starts with a z and i'm not gonna try to pronounce it but You probably know who I'm talking about. But anyway, everyone always recommends him as like, you know, this great Eastern philosopher. So I guess if I did start to look into it, I would probably start with him. Please enter a name asks, number one, are you a naturalist? And if so, what type are you? I'm a liberal naturalist. I do consider myself a naturalist at the end of the day. Oh, and I would also recommend Majesty of Reason's video. It's it's about, it's like the series on mistakes in philosophy. And in the, I believe it's the second one in the series, where he talks about like atheism and naturalism and you know a lot of these issues about the different kinds of naturalism and some of the annoying habits of apologists when they say oh you're a naturalist i see and then they attribute like 58 different things to you that you may or may not believe um number two if you could be a part of any religion what religion would you choose may not be a surprise to some of you but i mean legitimately mormonism um I mean, if you could pick a religion to be true, isn't that the one you'd pick? The one where you get to become a god of a universe somewhere? I mean, obviously. So yeah, I mean, look, over the course of the podcast, I've said a few, I've, you know, hosted a few episodes, written a few posts about the Latter-day Saint religion, and a lot of it, as many of you have noted, has been strangely positive. (laughs) Um, You know, at the very least, it hasn't been entirely negative. And I don't just like toss it aside as like obviously stupid, you know, like most atheists, I guess, who talk about the subject and most people actually. So why am I sympathetic to it? Well, first of all, I think that Mormons are often treated unfairly by atheists and by theists alike. So when I see the never-ending dogpile, there's just something in me that is like you know, I immediately want to take the opposite position. I I don't think it's just that I'm being a contrarian or something. It's like, I think that um, Mormonism has distinct advantages and atheists aren't able to see them because of just pure prejudice. Like Mormons don't believe in the standard notion of the Trinity. Okay. Is there an atheist on earth who thinks that the Trinity is like an advantage of like, other forms of Christianity. I seriously doubt it. So like, if you just say, if you say like Sam Harris does, like, oh, well, Mormonism is just, um, you know, Christianity plus implausible things. Okay, so if I take that seriously, he thinks that the Trinity is like a plausible thing, and getting rid of it, that makes it worse, that makes it, that makes Christianity less plausible. I'm pretty sure he doesn't think that. Okay, so like, a lot of atheists have that same kind of attitude, but I just don't see how, I think that they're being inconsistent. So, I mean, I also think Mormons have an advantage with design arguments, generally speaking, because the designer that they are positing is more like the designers that we have in our experience. So it doesn't seem like such an unjustified inference. You know, Mormons also don't believe in creation ex nihilo, which, I mean, again, like you can, you can accept it or not accept it, but like to To construe it as an advantage (laughs) to believe in a God who creates ex nihilo is very odd to me. You know, Mormons believe in a finitist God. They believe in this limited finitist God, which I think has advantages when it comes to the problem of evil. They also don't think that, like, you know, most people are going to be in agony for all of time, you know. They have gradients to the afterlife instead of just one of two places you can end up or something like that okay but uh, this wasn't really the question the question was like if you could be a part of any religion what religion would you choose so let me just read something um, that i wrote a few months ago this is a document (laughs) entitled seriously though what is the deal with you and mormonism (laughs) so this is one particular paragraph out of the document i think the mormon church has created a beautiful community one which stands out not only in our society but also among religious communities In my opinion, it will likely survive the atomizing forces at work today in a way that other established religions might not. It was funny to see a sci-fi show set centuries in the future in which Mormonism is the only surviving religion. (laughs) The church also has a fascinating history, much of which takes place in North America not too long ago. It's a distinctly American religion. As I alluded to earlier, the LDS worldview may have a few philosophical advantages over other forms of Christian theism, but it also has philosophical distinctions that are interesting in themselves. For example, the cosmology outlined in Joseph Smith's King Follett sermon is unlike anything you'll encounter in mainstream Christianity. I may not be a believer, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is socially, historically, and theologically interesting to me. So yeah, I mean, the first part of that is is most relevant, where, look, I, I'm on the outside, so if I have ex-Mormon listeners who can provide me other context that will uh, maybe shatter this image that I have, that's fine with me, I would welcome that, but it's just from the outside it seems as though the Mormon church has created a really lovely community that stands in sharp contrast to the kind of atomized, alienated society that it emerged from. And yeah, I can kind of see it surviving in a way that I'm not sure I can see other uh, sects of Christianity surviving. Michelle Welbeck wrote this book called Submission about how he thinks Islam is going to, I mean, I don't know what his actual views are, but it's just in the book, Islam kind of sweeps over France and it kind of offers people something that the contemporary secular culture is not offering them. And in the end, it's it's just irresistible and it's appealing and people end up going for it, you know, for all the other shortcomings, (laughs) to put it mildly, of Islam. Um, And uh, anyway, I, I kind of feel like someone could write a similar book about mormonism (laughs) um anyway so yeah i mean again this is an outsider's perspective but it seems like it's a nice community that would be nice to be a part of you know okay number three he said uh who are your favorite theist and atheist philosophers favorite atheist philosophers um paul draper schellenberg alex malpass um yeah i mean atheistic philosophers i'm assuming you mean philosophers who write about philosophy of religion on the theistic side um Josh Rasmussen, Dustin Crummit, Kenny Pierce, uh Richard Swinburne. Um I've been trying so hard to read the existence of God for who knows how long at this point. But like I keep working through it little by little and I keep finding individual sections that are interesting to me. But yeah, the existence of God is uh not easy to read, but it's it's still very good. <laughs> um oh, and I guess I like Elvin Planning. Uh, um I mean, maybe it's just like a Dutch pride thing, but you know, and I, I lived like five minutes away from his office in Grand Rapids. and I just never, never talked to him. <laughs> I was always too afraid. Oh, and I mentioned Felipe Leon earlier. Um, he's also a great atheist philosopher, but he uh, wrote back, he, he he had this dialogue book with Josh Rasmussen that I recommend all the time. That's just one of those books where like, you go back to it and you're like, oh, that's where I got that from. That thing that's just like so embedded in my mind that I don't even realize that I ever, there was ever a time I didn't think this. Um, Yeah, there are quite a few things from that book that, um, that are like that for me. Hayden asks, what do you think about the argument from myriological nihilism to substance dualism? The gist is you use the ship of Theseus and other thought experiments to show that our common sense view of myriology makes no sense. From there, you argue nihilism is the best alternative. I won't argue for that here. Plenty of work elsewhere on that, obviously. But if mereological nihilism is true, we don't exist because we're composite physical objects. But then again, we clearly do exist because, duh, so therefore we aren't composite objects. We are simple objects. We're obviously not simple material objects, so we must be a simple immaterial substance, namely a soul. Therefore, substance dualism is true. Um. Yeah, I mean, that is one of my favorite arguments for substance dualism. I don't know if you've heard me say that before, but I... Um, I was on this like it was like one of those things like twitter spaces or something and i was on there with dustin crummett and shane wagner and like a a few other people we were talking about philosophy of mind and stuff and i mentioned that like i really like this argument because myriological nihilism makes a ton of sense to me (laughs) like but just with the physical world it's like yeah myriological nihilism makes perfect sense to me at least it's like a minority position according to the phil paper survey but like I like there's something about it that is very intuitive to me, except when it comes to the mind for everything else. It makes it. It's like that is the right view. It's obviously the right view. Very logical nihilism. And then you think about the mind and you're like, well, that doesn't really fit. So the mind seems to not have parts. It seems to be this simple, indivisible thing. Like I can cut your brain in half, but I can't cut your mind in half doesn't really make sense in the same way it obviously makes sense that I can cut a composite physical object in half. Anyway, there are are many ways of making this intuition vivid of like, oh yeah, my mind seems like it is unified. I have this unified field of experience that can't be broken down into composite parts. But hang on, everything in the material world can be broken down into composite parts. No one should find this argument compelling unless you are already attracted to muriological nihilism and uh for some reason most philosophers aren't i happen to think it's (laughs) like a really clean neat non-arbitrary way of making sense of all this stuff in the physical world you know when you think about like the problem of the many or literally just thinking about borderline cases of things like tables and chairs and trees and human beings and stuff like that and then when you turn to the subject of the mind it just doesn't it doesn't translate. It, there's not like this one-to-one correspondence between the way you can talk about the physical world and composite objects and the way that you can talk about the mind. So I know I'm not making like a really detailed case, but you know, I just read this comment. So it was just made four minutes ago. I have been thinking about, you know, it's been in the back of my mind, my, my, uh, devil's advocate case for substance dualism. I mean, it's my second favorite position. So is it really a devil's advocate case? So you know, I mean, this would be one of the arguments. The argument from personal identity, personal identity, would probably be number one, and then this would be uh, second. It's just I, I almost never mention it because I assume most people are not into meriological nihilism. And if you don't know what that is, I mean, this is an AMA. I'm not. It's not my freaking job to educate you, dog. <laughs> Do you agree that we ought to legalize voluntary, lasting, and competent euthanasia? Ah, uh, man, I really don't like that idea um do you agree that we ought to legalize euthanasia well i can imagine cases where that would seem like the right thing to do like individual cases of someone suffering horribly who has no chance of living and they want to die i don't think we should step in the way of that um it's really easy to imagine cases like you know like there was this war movie that i saw where a soldier was like engulfed in flames, you know, just in total agony, and then he shot himself. And, you know, in movies, you've seen similar things, I'm sure, where either someone shoots them or they shoot themselves or something. And it's like, okay, well, surely we can grant that that's morally permissible. (laughs) Um, So the euthanasia cases that are most compelling are the ones that are only like a step or two removed from that, where someone is in horrible pain, there's no chance of them having a good life. So it just, and it, they want to die, you know? And like, why would you get in the way of them doing that? So the thing is, um, sort of like how you can agree that something is bad, but maybe not illegal or like it shouldn't be illegal because outlawing it will not have the intended effect. Um, You can sort of think similarly about this, or I mean, that's how I feel about it is like, i can imagine cases where euthanasia would make sense and it's hard to come up with an argument against it but that doesn't mean that it should be legalized um for the same reason that there are some things that i think are bad like i don't like you know i think that it's bad to be an alcoholic but i don't think it should be like illegal to be an alcoholic you know i think cheating on your spouse is bad but i don't think it should be illegal to cheat on your spouse so i think that certain cases of euthanasia are justified but When you think about having like a state program where you can have yourself killed um i I mean there are just so many ways that that could go wrong first of all so it's not just about justifying it in an ethical thought experiment it's about like how would this play out if we actually instituted this program and when you look at like the maid program in canada which seems seriously disturbing to me it seems like every story i hear about it sounds like a horror show. I can barely believe some of these things are happening. Um, and yet, you know, you look into it and it's like, this is a reputable news source in Canada that seems to just be reporting what's happening, like how this program is unfolding. So just because I agree that like, well, there are cases of euthanasia that would be justified, that that's pretty far removed from saying, well, it should be legalized. For the same reason that you can agree that something is immoral but that doesn't mean it should be illegal the other caleb asks what are your thoughts on each general area era of philosophy ancient medieval modern postmodern etc so for ancient um i don't have much to say because ancient greek philosophy for example just never really never really like grabbed a hold of me um, the way that the way that other stuff in modern philosophy did i I recognize that Aristotle was a genius in some sense. You know, like I've got, I've got one like collection of works by Aristotle. I've got this other book um, that John Buck gave me, actually. And that's been very useful. But it's just like, other than wanting to learn some things about Aristotle and some things about like teleology, it's just ancient Greek philosophy is just not ever really... Um, you know, pulled me into it, it's never really like sucked me into its orbit the way that contemporary analytic philosophy has. I think, I mean, let me give you this example because there's something I saw online on Twitter that is uh, probably going to be frustrating to people who like Greek philosophy, but um, it is how a lot of it comes off to those of us who are not interested in it. The default way for things to taste is good. We know this because tasty means something tastes good. Conversely, from the words smelly and noisy, we can conclude that the default way for things to smell and sound is bad. Interestingly, there are no corresponding adjectives for the senses of sight and touch. The inescapable conclusion is that the most ordinary object possible is invisible and intangible, produces a hideous cacophony, smells terrible, but tastes delicious. And yet this description matches no object or phenomenon known to science or human experience. And someone said this is what ancient Greek philosophy is like. So, apologize to all the ancient Greek philosophy appreciators out there. Medieval philosophy is like that, but somehow worse. And uh, Kane Baker, in one of his recent AMAs, said something like, "What I remember reading Aquinas, and it was like every single step, I was just like, nope, 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 nope. Like, there's just something about like the people, like me or Kane, perhaps, who were like products of more contemporary." analytic philosophy who you see something from like a thousand years ago and it's just like everything strikes you as wrong like almost every step is just like either just totally unjustified i think i feel like david bentley hart said something about this too like when you're reading tomists specifically they like signal this is a premise in my argument but they just assert it like it's this obvious eternal truth that could not possibly be denied and it just, it gets kind of funny after a point because it's just like the level of confidence they have for some very bizarre sounding metaphysical premise. It's just, it's just very striking. And again, it's just never been really attractive to me. And I, th- I feel like I read David Melody Hart say that in That All Shall Be Saved when he was writing, um, I think he was writing about Thomist arguments against annihilationism. Um, I think that was the con- the context. And as for the modern and postmodern, it's like, yeah, look, I'm a product of that more than anything. Like, um, I mean, I can't really help it. <laughs> like, I uh, I suppose I do have more of a choice in the matter than you know. I, I'm just saying, my default state is like being a product of modern philosophy, and to a lesser extent, I guess, postmodern philosophy. Much much lesser extent. I don't have purely negative things to say about postmodernism, like. To the extent I understand it, I mean, it has been useful. I mean, like who's been called a postmodernist? Like Richard Rorty's been called a postmodernist, um, at least by some of his critics. And it's like, I like Rorty. (laughs) I like his contributions. Um, I have a couple of his books and uh, they've been valuable to me. Just to give one example of like Foucault, the whole concept of like an episteme, you know, there are these cultural paradigms that we operate on That are largely unquestioned that kind of they govern our cultural logic and our common sense even you know the way that we reason about things the things that seem obvious and the things that don't seem so obvious just the idea of like this cultural epistemic paradigm that we operate on and typically don't notice it's very useful when you're trying to understand for example like not just medieval philosophers, but like people who lived in that era, just ordinary people who lived in that era, like non-philosophers, then some of the the ways that they reason are like, it it might as well be like an alien writing things down. So just to give one example of this where you can sort of see what I'm talking about, there's this episode of Parker's Pensée called um, What Did Foucault Really Believe with Dr. Chris Watkin, and uh, they talked about, you know, Foucault and you know, the whole notion of an episteme there and i'm saying like if you can listen to that whole discussion and be like yeah nothing of value here then that would be very surprising to me um, there are things of value in the postmodern in the postmodern um camp and chris watkin is um a christian so, i mean like that's kind of why i'm recommending that because there's no contaminating kind of like thing in the back of your head of like oh wait, wait, what are the politics of this person do they have some agenda and it's like Look, this is a Christian talking about postmodernism, and he has mostly positive things to say about it. So, um, yeah, you should watch that video. It's called What Did Foucault Really Believe on Parker's (laughs) Pensee? I used to call that Parker's Penises because I didn't know what that word was. And um, they always say Parker's Pensies because it's just the funny, like, American way of pronouncing it. And uh, he's just going with the incorrect way as a joke, but I had never heard that word before when I first came across the podcast. So I just called it Parker's penises for a while. Um, but you know what, let him pronounce his own podcast. how he wants to, since when do we, I mean, we're going to let the French tell us how to, how to say things. KT ktbyo Y O asks thoughts on Jordan Peterson. Um, well, I made an episode about Jordan Peterson way back when I haven't listened to it in a long time. So I don't know if I totally stand by it, but, um, I mean, look, he has he gives some good advice. You know, maybe you should clean your room. <laughs> My wife is really into Jordan Peterson, or at least she was for a time. Like insofar as he's like a therapist and like a self-help guy or something, um, I think some of his insights are like really helpful and like some people really need to hear the things that he had to say. But um, I think even people who are fans of him have kind of agreed that he's gone a little bit insane like ever since he came out of that coma and um started dressing like the riddler and posting um haikus on twitter and like there's just other things going on with him he just seems and he's like really into like anti-climate change stuff like i don't know man like he seems to have gone off the deep end in a way that he was not off of it before i vaguely remember him saying like oh yeah because ozzy ozymandias uh asked him this uh during a debate where he was just like you know you're you're saying like athe like a real atheist would be like a murderer or something (laughs) like anyway um so yeah he has a lot of stupid things to say about atheism in particular but if you just want like i've always said like in defense of him i imagine he would be like a pretty good therapist like i would be happy if he was my therapist i think i feel like he would be good at that but like for his philosophical commentary on atheism like yeah it's terrible (laughs) like you know that's something i probably would stand by um i do remember talking about that now in that episode i mean that episode is a few years old at this point i used to just hate him and then my wife kind of got into some of his like 12 rules for life stuff um at least you know if she liked it it helped her a little bit and uh, she found some of it inspiring and very useful so that, that kind of forced me to like look at him a little more charitably and be like okay, look, I mean, a lot of this is like totally decent advice, you know, that I'm sure a lot of people need to hear um, that I could, I mean, I probably need to hear a lot of it. And I still see clips floating around every once in a while of him, you know, making a good point. There was one I saw recently that said, um, you know, he was talking about the Holocaust and how people say never forget. And he's like, we'll never forget what? And He's like, well, I think that the thing we're not supposed to forget is that you're the Nazi you would have been statistically one of the Nazis if you were in Germany at that time. You know, this is like a pretty common point when you're talking about moral luck. You know, you are lucky to not be born in Germany at that time because most people were either Nazis or they didn't say anything and they were just complicit. You know, so the odds are that you would not be Schindler. Okay, you would not be one of the brave resistors. That is just not likely. Um, so he was saying, like the odds are you would have been a Nazi. You might have engaged in horrible things. You might have been complicit in horrible things. You might have actually actively participated in horrible things, and you might have even liked it. He's like, so you need to be aware that you have that capacity. You know, you are capable of doing horrible, evil things. So, you know, what's that Solzhenitsyn passage about you know the line between good and evil runs through every human heart? um yeah so i mean what's wrong with that <laughs> like what's wrong why would i be like oh fuck, jordan peterson for saying <laughs> that you have an immense capacity for cruelty and for evil things and you need to watch yourself so you know if we're being charitable maybe we should judge him by you know him at his best and not him at his most psychotic <laughs> but anyway So user asks, um, have you looked into Islam by any chance? We're the only ones to be theologically strictly monotheistic, no trinity or rabbis beating a god in arguments. (laughs) Um, Plus, most of the arguments thrown at us are stuff like hijab is sexist, which is a subjective argument that holds zero bearing in anything or stuff that is still explainable in our part. Our book has no narrative or logical contradictions in it, and there is a consensus among secular Middle East historians that our book has not you know, changed at all in terms of message watch margin van putten if so what's stopping you from becoming a muslim love to see your arguments so i've not really looked into islam um i mean i have general arguments against theism or for naturalism um you know i have arguments for positions that are incompatible with islam um i yeah i've heard that you're strictly monotheistic and I, because i've seen muslims debate the trinity so i'm almost certainly on your side <laughs> with respect to that the rabbis beating a god and are beating god in arguments that's funny um plus most of the arguments thrown at us are stuff like the hijab is sexist okay well i mean it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that is like totally unacceptable like could you imagine a world where it's just kind of expected that women wear a hijab and it's like would that really be the worst thing ever it's like well i mean as long as it's not compelled then who cares? But I mean, as always, the issue is just whether it's compelled. It's not like, oh, it's sexist that men and women would dress differently or something. The issue is that it seems as if it is compelled for a lot of Muslim women. Um, we don't know if they would do it voluntarily because they don't have the option. You know, So is it voluntary? Is it not voluntary? Well, we don't know because there are in some Muslim communities, horrible consequences for not you know, being traditional in that way. So if it's voluntary, then I don't have any issue with it. I think it looks good sometimes. Um, I guess that's not the point but, um, of wearing it. But uh, I mean, like if that became like a fashion trend or something, or like, you know, there was just like a, I don't know, like a modesty revival in like secular culture or something, I wouldn't be like, oh no, it's <laughs> oh, terrible. Again, it's just the issue for me has always been that it's compelled for a lot of people. And some people, it's not compelled. But I mean, that doesn't change the fact that for a lot of women, it either is compelled or we don't know if it's compelled because they don't really have the option. Um, So that's the problem with that. It's not like, oh, it's implausible that God would tell men and women to do different things. Our book has no narrative or logical contradictions. um, (laughs) I don't seriously doubt that. But um, you know i haven't read it so i guess i don't know our book hasn't changed i mean i have heard something like that like there is this emphasis on like preserving the text um okay so if so what's stopping you well i mean none of that really why would that convince me to be a muslim that like well we've got this book that's never changed okay well if god doesn't exist that could still be the the case that you have a book that you have meticulously preserved who cares i mean oh well we don't buy into the trinity good for you i still don't think god exists you know but as for looking into islam specifically no i haven't really done that i've made this point before that like if god exists you have to think he doesn't really care that much about our specific theological beliefs like he he must not care too greatly about humans having the correct theology because if you assume that he does then you just create all these problems for yourself like god must be horribly incompetent because of all the theological disagreement, you know, so he must have intended, or at least find it to be like acceptable, that there's widespread theological disagreement. Which I think one could fashion that kind of consideration into an argument for, you know, universalism or for um, inclusivism. So, um, assuming God is not incompetent, then I think he just must not care that much that people have the correct theological beliefs you know, and arguably there are goods that come about from biblical disagreement and theological disagreement. You know, I can think of goods that come about from that, but they are clearly outweighed if everyone who gets the wrong answer is like tortured for all of time or misses out on, on an infinite future of value. <laughs> um, you know, in other words, if infernalism or annihilationism are true. So I, a part, I just, I don't have that much of a motivation to look into Islam because I think, well, look, I have these arguments against theism generally, for one. And secondly, if there is a God, like, I would imagine that he allows us to understand the divine through our own cultural windows. If he doesn't, then he must be, like, massively incompetent. Stephen asks, does your mother know you spend so much time talking to strangers on the Internet? Um, I think she has an idea. Uh, Muhammad Ali asks, hi, what is your opinion on the resurrection and what do you think of Christian apologists who argue for its historicity? Um, You know, I think less about the resurrection than you might expect considering I have an atheist podcast, but like those arguments just never really roped me into uh, their, their orbit. You know, like a lot of atheists spend a lot of time arguing about New Testament related stuff, you know, but for me, it was always the more philosophical stuff that was interesting. You know, like design arguments have always been more interesting to me than arguments from like the resurrection or, you know, even other philosophical arguments. But uh the stuff about the resurrection, when it comes down to it, it's like we have copies of copies of copies of texts that were written decades after the events by non-eyewitnesses, I'm pretty sure. Um, from what I understand, non-eyewitnesses. Um You know, and again, they were writing a pretty long time after these events happened. Like, if you ask me to recount even significant events that happened 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, it's just like the idea that's going to be totally faithfully recorded. Anyway, the point is we have, like, devoted followers, you know, who are passing on stories orally for a long time. And then eventually these stories are written down, copies are made, and that's what we have. But when you think about the chain, like linking the events to me right now sitting here, it's like the testimonial chain is different from other testimonial chains. OK, so like I wouldn't cast doubt on like the whole of testimony or something like that. But when I I mean, that doesn't mean that all testimonial claims are like of equal quality, you know, so like the test, the chain of testimony that goes back to the resurrection is different from the chain of testimony that goes to me realizing that everything is made of atoms or something like that. So you can't just say like, well, you believe that, you know, Japan is a country based on testimony or that things are made of atoms based based on testimony. Therefore, you know, it's inconsistent not to, you know, believe the resurrection based on testimony. And nobody makes that argument. It's just some atheists will say, well, who cares about testimony? They make way too strong of a claim in the opposite direction. I mean, when it comes down to it, I just don't care that much that some religious devotees came to believe that their guru came back from the dead at the end of the day i just don't care about that that much like i've heard so many similar-ish stories like similar feeling stories of like there are these you know disciples of a religious guru who testify to extraordinary things being performed by their religious guru and it's like does that really affect you that much and for me the answer is across the board No, not really. So I just don't see the intuitive appeal of the resurrection arguments. Um, That said, the few times that I have like looked into it and like listened to like longer debates or like read something about it, there are certain points where I feel the pressure to admit that something weird happened. The, The events surrounding Jesus's death and people saying he was resurrected, like It's hard for me to think that like, you know, some of the obvious mundane explanations are plausible at all. Like people just straight up lying about it, for example. Um, Yeah, I don't I don't think that's plausible. Yeah. So like I said, I do feel pressured when you start asking more specific questions. I do feel pressured to like admit that something extraordinary or unusual happened. But again, it's not like I'm inconsistent here. Like, with those other religious gurus who had devoted followers who say that he did extraordinary things um it's not like i grant zero credence to those things either but yeah like i said it just it ultimately comes down to the fact that i just at the end of the day don't care that much that there are some devotees who say that their religious leader did a couple extraordinary things like i mean (laughs) like kind of if you just take out the proper nouns there I think most people would feel the same way I do, like they just don't care. Way more interesting to me are like general arguments for theism. So John asks, what's your best argument against veganism? If you think non-human animals have some amount of moral value, why aren't you vegan? So the best argument against veganism, I guess that defend, that depends on how you define veganism. Like if you think of it as like literally under no circumstances can you eat animal products, then it's extremely trivial to come up with counterexamples Um, but the thing is most vegans don't believe that, I guess, you know, one potential argument against veganism is, um, an argument for like, I don't know what this position would be called, I guess, like being a scavenger or something. Um, like what's wrong with scavenging? Like if, uh, I'm not talking about like vultures. I mean, like, um, you know, like if you, if there's some food that's like definitely headed for the trash can, you know, and you eating it is not going to have any impact on like market forces or anything like that, then what's the harm, you know? So if veganism is incompatible with scavenging, um, you know, like if there's food that is definitely 100%, if you don't eat it, it is going in the trash. Okay. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, that I can see. So if that is incompatible with veganism, then I guess that would be a pretty good argument. Um, again, I kind of doubt that a lot of vegans would, really be against that um but on the other hand i can tell you from personal experience that um, if you call yourself a vegan or vegetarian and you eat animal products under any circumstance then people will uh you know flip out so whether or not it's incompatible is i don't i mean i don't know if you think non-human animals have some amount of moral value why aren't you vegan well i am a vegetarian um the reason i'm not a vegan um, well, the thing is like, there are degrees of not being a vegan, like, um, you know, like I buy plant butter, I use like oat milk. Um, uh, the only thing really is just cheese. Cause like vegan cheese, is just, it's appalling. Like, it's just, and I know that's like a trivial reason and I think it's wrong. Like, I think what I'm doing is wrong. Like in like buying cheese and stuff because, um, of like taste pleasure, but like, cause it's not like it's healthy or something. So, yeah, I think paying to have other animals uh, tortured, basically, so I can have a tasty treat um, is morally wrong. But here's the thing. Nobody judges me for it. And in fact, people judge me if I don't do that and then say something about it. I mean, I don't think this is even a complicated issue. It's like, hmm, is it wrong to pay other people to torture animals for trivial reasons? Like, geez, what a what a moral conundrum. Um, So, yeah, I think that me being vegetarian and not vegan is just, you know, pure hypocrisy, but, uh, I can get away with it. So, uh, that is the unflattering truth of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, what am I going to lie and pretend like I have some noble reason or some like profound argument for why I can have cheese pizza? I just like cheese pizza. I really, really like, I'm basically a utility monster when it comes to cheese pizza. Well, I definitely don't think it's intrinsically wrong to eat animal products, but I'm not even sure it's wrong to eat meat. Exactly. It just, it the thing that is clear is that factory farming is evil (laughs) that like factory farming is like a horror show it is the worst thing that humans have ever done like that much is clear to me and it's like okay um my main issue is with factory farming so do i have an issue with hunting like just some guy going out with like a bow and arrow and shooting a deer to like feed his family I mean, like, I don't have a problem with that either. So my main issue is with factory farming, um, not that it's like inherently wrong to eat animal products. Okay, so factory farming is the thing that needs to be combated. What impact am I having on factory farming? Because I mean, this is what I tell myself when I'm buying the cheese pizza. Just the idea that like, okay, factory farming is the thing that we should all, whether you're a vegan or not, everyone should agree factory farming is like really, 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 really bad. Um, even if they don't agree, it's like the worst thing hum- humans have ever done, even though I think it is hard to avoid that conclusion if you ascribe like any amount of moral value to non-human animals. Um, But I think that uh, it's extremely obvious that it's wrong to have animals tortured to death, to pay other people to torture them to death so you can have uh, you know, have your little treats. Like, yeah, that's wrong. I mean, could anything possibly be more obvious than (laughs) like the wrongness of that? But then you think, okay, so it's wrong, but like if I want it to stop, how is me not participating in it going to lead to that? Like it's just a, It doesn't matter if I participate or not. Like you can say it's wrong, but I'm saying if I want to bring an end to it, how is me not participating going to bring an end to it? So this isn't an argument against it, against like veganism per se, but it is an argument against being a vegan. Like if you lack the moral motivation just to do the right thing, and you say like, well look, I would stop eating cheese pizza if I thought that me doing so would lead to the end of factory farming or like diminish it in some noticeable way, but it won't. So why bother? Like I said, this is the thing that I tell myself when I'm when I'm buying the cheese pizza. It's like, look, me buying this or not buying this, the world is exactly the same. So what difference does it make? Vegans have tried to work this out. Like how many times do you have to abstain from like eating meat or something so that like one animal life is saved. And I I mean, this is like, I'm pulling this from like a podcast that I half remember from like a year ago. I feel like that number is something like 900 or something. You know, it, you have to like abstain like several hundred times in order to save like one cow life or something like that. Um, and even if that's not the right number, you can still kind of put down like toy numbers and just kind of think like, okay, what impact am I realistically having on this factory farming thing? Now, I think some people respond too strongly and they say like, oh, there's no impact. It's like, well, look, we live in a market system and your consumption habits do have an impact on what gets produced. You know, like if there's an organized boycott against something that absolutely does have an effect on production and it has an effect on the company. It has an effect, like, Dude, we live in a capitalist system. Like the things that you buy or don't buy, it does have an effect. Okay. Like it's not that it has no effect, it, it, which some people try to argue for, but it's like the effect is so negligible that it just feels like it doesn't matter. It feels like I'm like I'm in a sinking ship, just like using a bucket, you know, trying to get the water out or something. But yeah, there's some interesting ideas in um, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future. It's just like a sci fi book about climate change. But, um, you know, it's just funny to me when people are like vegan or vegetarian, but like just for um, climate change related reasons, it's like not for the animal torture reasons. Um, it, I mean, the way I think of it is like, imagine if there was like a big dial that you could twist and when we turned it way up, you know, the amount of carbon emissions went way up, you know, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions goes way up and it causes excruciating, unbearable torture for animals, you know? So it's like this, this incomprehensible amount of pain and suffering. <laughs> it's like we crank that dial all the way up and some people say, that's terrible. There's so much methane being released right now. It's like, isn't the more immediate thing the uh, excruciating pain? How is that the first thing that came to mind? But anyway, regardless of what you think about veganism exactly, the arguments against factory farming are completely unassailable and you are just ignorant or in denial or maybe like a moral retard or something if you can't see that factory farming is a complete atrocity. I thought my answer to this one in particular was kind of incomplete, so I couldn't resist just jumping back in for a second and adding a few things, clarifying a couple things that were implicit. So there are no good arguments against veganism. First of all, once you admit, as most morally sane and informed people do, that factory farming is bad. Well, guess where 99.99% of animal products come from? I mean, even if you don't think there's like intrinsically a problem with eating animal products, but you grant that factory farming is evil, well, guess where all of our animal products come from? Your actions have an effect on the markets. Okay, so when you buy like fake meat products, that's a good thing to do, I think. Um, when you abstain from buying factory farm products, that's a good thing. It just takes a long time. Um, It takes a lot of people doing it and it takes abstaining from that in many, many cases in order for, you to have an impact. So I didn't mean nothing you do matters. I mean there's no real difference that I can see between becoming a vegan and reducing your consumption of animal products by like 99%. So that's why I mentioned there are degrees of not being a vegan and that sort of thing. So maybe this is in line with the you know the first set of kind of arguments where I was saying like well if Scavenging is incompatible with veganism, then there's an argument, I guess. Or if hunting for survival is incompatible with veganism, which those things are plausibly compatible with veganism. Now, there are like insane vegans, obviously. Like, there are people who they won't even buy like fake meat products or like lab grown meat, or they're like a part of PETA, which I I barely believe that PETA is real, honestly. Like, they genuinely seem like a psyop. But, you know, the kind of reducitarianism that I'm talking about is more plausible plausibly incompatible with veganism. Another point, you know, when I said I don't really see the issue with hunting for sustenance, like I specifically had children in mind. I think that when it comes to the development and growth of children, it's pretty plausible that in order to reach their full potential, at least, they need an array of natural proteins. They would do better with a healthy diet that contains animal products. So if there's a conflict between the health of my children and the welfare of animals, guess who's winning that conflict? I mean, I still wouldn't want to participate in factory farming. You know, we could hunt or buy from hunters or spend a ton of extra money to buy non-factory farmed products. This kind of consideration doesn't change anything for me because I think it's easier to be an adult and have a healthy vegan diet. Um, It's possible for kids as well, I'm sure, but like, I'm not a nutritionist. It's hard enough to feed kids it's like you know if it's not impossible then it is impractically difficult actually that's not a bad argument against god if it's true i mean vegans would probably dispute some of the premises but it's like if you literally can't have um if you can't raise children on a vegan diet and have them reach their full potential like they have to eat animal products so it's like veganism is true kids can't be healthy without like an array of natural proteins or they'll be like significantly uh you know hobbled by a vegan diet even like a well planned one you know the conjunction of those two things seems like okay and and god is the designer of this system where we're pitted against each other it just it would have been so easy for god to create a different scenario where we don't have to like eat each other in order to survive or at least like even if you don't have to it's like why are the incentive structures as they are and it's not just trivial stuff like oh well it feels good to do the wrong thing i mean that's what it is for me but it's like if you're talking about raising children it's like oh it's just the welfare of children <laughs> call me crazy but i find it hard to believe that an omnipotent omniscient designer created a natural order where it is so incentivized in terms of health benefits and pleasure to kill and eat sentient animals and at the risk of stating the obvious you know this is not like a treatise on every one of the topics that comes up you know i'm just kind of saying what comes to mind um But I do have episodes about a lot of the topics that came up, but I I was interviewed on perspective philosophy about veganism and animal suffering as evidence against God. So if you look at my playlist appearances on other shows, then uh, that'll come up. And that's like a two hour conversation about veganism and uh, animal suffering as evidence against God. So there's obviously more to say, but um, we talked about a range of things in that conversation. Duade asks... Um, hi, Emerson. Thanks for doing the AMA. Given the challenges associated with panpsychism, such as the combination problem and the current lack of empirical evidence, what do you believe is the primary value or goal in adopting this approach to understanding consciousness? How does panpsychism advance our comprehension of consciousness in ways other other theories might not? So I remember Philip Goff getting this question in his debate with Sean Carroll, and it's like, no, it, I'm not saying adopt panpsychism so we can achieve, like, say like some other goal it's like no the goal is to just understand how consciousness fits into the physical world like how do these two things fit together and panpsychism gives us a way of doing that that has certain advantages like it's not like oh adopt this so we can do this other thing like that was never the point the point is just we want to understand how consciousness fits into the natural world exactly And this is one answer for that that has some advantages for it, some arguments for it that seem pretty good. Um, That's the advantage. We're just trying to explain consciousness. And if it's true, I suppose it'll have benefits that maybe we can't totally foresee. Um, Some people have argued that panpsychism might have certain environmental benefits. And I can kind of see that. I talked about it a little bit at the end of my conversation with Jack Symes, if you want to see that unpacked a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, I can kind of see how like, imbuing the world with intrinsic value and not just instrumental value could have an, an impact on um, how we treat the natural world like i really love those um avatar movies <laughs> and like i uh you know like i'm fascinated by you know the way of life that's depicted in this universe and um i feel like if you're thinking like okay that's a pretty cool way of living like i wish we could live more like that Um, I wish we could be more like that as a species. I feel like panpsychism would make that easier. It would make that transition more feasible. So Lord Tywin asks, where can one find the best defenses for objective morality? Um, Rush Schaefer-Landau, very solid. Michael Humer is the main one that convinced me there, I guess. So ethical intuitionism, if you happen to have um, knowledge, reality, and value, then there are chapters where moral realism is defended. And uh, if you happen to have understanding knowledge, the uh, epistemology book that I reviewed on this channel, um, there's a long section on moral epistemology and like evolutionary debunking arguments. And it's like really fascinating. But yeah, ethical intuitionism is the uh, like textbook defense of moral realism from humor that I really enjoyed. Also, um, if you're coming at this from more of like a philosophy of religion perspective, then um, Eric Wielenberg and william lane craig debated and that debate was turned in, turned into a book and there were responses humor has a response to craig in that book um but yeah william lane craig and eric wheelenberg yeah and there were several people who who wrote pieces that were also in that humor was one of them oh and Shelley kagan versus william lane craig that is a fantastic debate um that's on youtube you should watch that for sure so space lemonade asks i'm a ufo believer so if i'm right How would the existence of non-human intelligences or extraterrestrials affect theism and atheism what if they're not christians would the laws of christian religion apply to them why did the resurrection happen here on earth and not in another alien civilization isn't that suspicious um okay so how would the existence of nhis slash ets affect theism and atheism well a lot of people have this intuition that like if aliens are real that's really bad news for theism and I felt that way as well, but I think that that's not just because of like, okay, we have theism and atheism, and now we're comparing, you know, now we have this new data point, non-human intelligences or extraterrestrials exist. Does that raise the probability of theism or lower it, or does it have no effect? So this might be unpopular, but I think it has a negligible effect. I think that it plausibly raises the probability of theism, but not by any amount that we should really... um, care about. But the reason is that there's this argument for atheism from the extreme hostility of like 99.9% repeating of the universe. So like, uh, almost the entire universe is horrifically hostile to life of any kind, um, especially complex conscious life. So that is evidence against theism. And if it turns out the universe is less hostile than we thought, then that is less evidence against theism that we have now. So if you want to see that argument played out um, in a little more detail, Justin Schieber defended it in his debate against Eric Hernandez. So if you look that up, um, yeah, Schieber defended it there. But yeah, I mean, I think that argument works. And if there's more life, then just as a matter of consistency, I have to say, yeah, that is that means that that is marginally less evidence against theism but then you start you start asking these like follow-up questions that i think get at why people feel like there would be a problem here so like what if they were not christians (laughs) so like here's the thing like if we discovered in another another alien civilization and they are christians then i'm converting (laughs) like if christianity just you know recognizably christianity just independently arose on another planet And there was no communication between our planet and their planet why would you not convert after that i mean other than just ruling like ruling out that the aliens are like lying to us or manipulating us for some reason um just assume that like no genuinely like there are the christianity exists on this planet i feel like i have to say that because there are some atheists who would still resist even at that point and i feel like that You got to just acknowledge that you're a resistant non-believer at that point. Because, yeah, if Christianity exists on another planet, then I'm a Christian that day. But here's the thing. If they weren't Christians, wouldn't that be pretty surprising on the truth of Christianity? So there are a lot of desperate Christians who are, they would just be like, nope, no, no, no evidence, no evidence whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, It's a little evidence against Christianity. If like Christianity just doesn't exist in any form on this other planet. First of all, that just trivially follows where If you say like okay if christianity on this other planet is evidence for christianity then the total absence of christianity has to be evidence against christianity you cannot have your cake and eat it too there but yeah you don't even have to go that like probabilistic you know bayesian route you can just think like intuitively isn't it crazy that there are these like intelligent persons over there you know i mean if they're rational wouldn't they have the wouldn't they be made in the image of god i mean when we say that we're made in the image of God, I don't think the point is that we're like bipedal primates or something like, it must be something about our minds, right? So I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the kind of aliens that we're thinking about, well, like, wouldn't they also be image bearers in that sense? And the idea that they just have no clue about Christianity? Uh, Yeah, of course that's surprising. So would the laws of Christian religion apply to them? I mean, what are the laws of Christian religion? Like love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, I would assume so. Um, I mean, I would also assume that aliens would have like a different psychology than us. So, I mean, maybe there are like fundamental principles that would be similar, but maybe some of the specifics would be different. And finally, he says, um, what did the resurrect? Why did the resurrection happen right here on Earth and not in another alien civilization? Isn't that suspicious? Well, I don't think so. I mean, the Christian has a lot of options here. So, the first thing that came to mind was C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, where, um, you know, there are all these other intelligent civilizations, and it turns out that humans were the only ones that fell. Like we were the only sinful ones that had to be redeemed. <clears throat> no one else had to be redeemed. Uh, I haven't read them, by the way. I've just heard this secondhand. But yeah, it's like humans were the only ones that needed redeeming. Um, so yeah, that's possible. Um, it's also possible that uh you know god became incarnate on earth just once and for all um it's also possible that god became incarnate in multiple places i mean what is there some rule that says that can't happen like oh god you know a member of the trinity can only incarnate once why like i see some atheists present this kind of thing as like either you know jesus died for everyone in the universe's sins or he incarnated multiple places. We have like multiple space Jesuses and stuff. And it's like, what exactly is the problem? Like, I can hear you saying this as if there's a problem, but I'm not clear on what the problem is. Like, why would there be an issue either way? Anyway, I do think some Christians are like, maybe a little too flippant about this, where they're like, well, if there's a civilization that, um, you know, they've never even heard of God or they've never heard of Christianity or anything, that's just a whole new civilization for us to proselytize to Praise the Lord. And it's like, you are just, that is like, that is as psychologically desperate as an atheist who says, like, it's no evidence for Christianity if Christianity arose independently on another planet. Okay, so Mana, mana da, 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 da asks, are you a dualist or a physicalist? <laughs> uh, hmm, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I mean, between those two, I'm more sympathetic to dualism by a lot. And he says, have you considered John Searle's position on the same? Um, I'm kind of skeptical that John Searle has like carved out like a unique thing that is like truly distinct from the organization that like everyone else is kind of using. But yeah, I mean, John Searle, he has some good things to say, some bad things to say. That's my very interesting opinion about John Searle. Um, Shantifier says, wouldn't solipsism be simpler than panpsychism? One mind instead of many, and also explain the data. Um, Okay. Well, you could say that about anything. You could say, wouldn't solipsism be simpler than the idea that other minds exist? Um, Solipsism is pretty simple. (laughs) Um, So when, I mean, this kind of challenge is presented to people sometimes, and there are sort of three routes you can take. One is just saying, actually, I don't care about simplicity as a theoretical virtue. So it doesn't matter that solipsism is simpler than whatever it is, panpsychism or the thesis that other minds exist or what have you. Or you could say, well, okay, it is simpler, but there are other things we care about besides simplicity. Simplicity is not the only theoretical virtue and it's not the only thing that we factor in when we're making epistemic judgments. So, sure, it's simpler, but other things outweigh it. And another route you can take is that, oh, actually, solipsism is not simpler. I mean, like, the only way you could really do that is, like, breaking up simplicity into different kinds of simplicity. Like, you could have simplicity with respect to You know the number of entities the kinds of things and with adjustable parameters so this is um like how michael humer sets it up in understanding knowledge and you could try to say well you know solipsism is simple according to this one measure of simplicity this one kind of simplicity but not with the other kind um me personally i kind of lean towards the first two options where i'm like okay solipsism is simpler in some sense I mean, in some sense, it's about as simple as it gets, but it's not the only thing we care about. Simplicity is not the only thing that matters when we're making judgments about, you know, what's most likely to be true. And sometimes I'm just like, maybe I seriously overestimated the importance of simplicity. Maybe it really doesn't matter that much um, as a theoretical virtue. I think there are plausible counterexamples to that. But um, yeah, so I do think simplicity matters, but I just think there are other things that we care about. Um, So panpsychism wins out on like every other area. Like, solipsism loses on every possible measure other than simplicity, right? So Pink Floyd Sound asks, any thoughts on idealism? Well, I mean, insofar as idealism is like overlapping with panpsychism, then I like it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if we're talking about like subjective idealism, like Barclay's idealism, it ultimately, I mean, it seems like it's counterintuitive for not enough of a payoff. And I don't really get the reason why I would disregard my intuitions about the external world kind of um, being mind independent. You know, it's like, so I think this table is real. It is not just like an appearance in my mind. There is something over and above the appearance in my mind that is independent of my mind and of God's mind. If God exists, you know, it's not that I like can't see what they're trying to say. <laughs> It's just like, it's extremely counterintuitive, but I don't see a reason why I should abandon my more commonsensical view about this. And when I say my commonsensical view, I mean a view that is compatible with panpsychism. So like, we're like really leaving common sense far behind if we're embracing like Barclay's idealism. And again, that's fine if it's sufficiently motivated, but I just, I don't get the motivation for doing it. But yeah, insofar as Rosalian panpsychism and, you know, objective idealism or something like to the extent that those are the same thing, then obviously I'm in favor of it. I just use a different label in part just because, so, I mean, let's just, let's just stipulate that these two views, you know, objective idealism and Rosalian panpsychism, that those are like the same view, at least in some forms. So why call myself a panpsychist? Well, Ultimately, I think that people just get such they, they get the wrong idea so reliably from idealism where they think that you're talking about Barclay's idealism, even if you repeatedly specify that that's not what you're talking about. Um, I would just rather say panpsychism. <laughs> um, and plus, I like attaching it to Russell's structuralism specifically. So average dude asks, which political system do you think is right? Uh, fascism. Next question. No, I mean, this is, political philosophy is something I've thought considerably less about in the past few years than um, I did when I was first getting into philosophy. So like Noam Chomsky kind of got me into political philosophy to begin with. When I was in high school, I was kind of like a juvenile libertarian. Like I remember I ran into one kid who was like a like a real libertarian who like actually read like, you know, Rothbard and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, who's your favorite like libertarian philosopher? I'm like, i just think weed should be legal (laughs) that war is bad like what do you mean um but yeah so that's why that's why i say like juvenile libertarian because you know it was like because i mean when i was in high school this is like i graduated in 2014 so like this is when libertarianism was kind of having its moment and um yeah i just kind of got caught up in that zeitgeist and i you know i mean it influenced me because when i came across noam chomsky he was kind of like speaking a language that I was already, you know, sympathetic to, but he was defending socialism, but like in the name of like individual liberty. And, um, I found that very attractive and I still find it attractive. So I'm some vague type of socialist, but the thing is like, I just have not looked into, um, I just have not been very thorough about this because I just don't think it matters what I think about this. (laughs) Like, I just don't think I have any power over the, uh, political establishment. But um, yeah, I mean, I I guess there is some hope for, uh, you know, like I heard Michael Humer say this about his like anarcho capitalism, where he's like, well, look, at one point, the ideas that are at the foundation of like liberal democracy, those were just things that philosophers were talking about. And then at some point, uh, there was a revolution and a new country was founded and the people who founded the country were influenced by those philosophers. And he's like, so that's what I'm hoping for. So if you're looking for something other than just a council of despair, which is what I'm offering, then um, I guess that would be it. Like, it's worth engaging in political philosophy because you might influence some people who found a new society after some revolution or something. Um, But other than that, uh, you probably don't have any influence over anything, and it truly does not matter what you think. So anyway, if you have power, it's different, but who cares what type of socialist I am or whether I am a socialist? Like, like I'm sorry for sounding so pessimistic, but it's like, literally, what does it matter? Like, what does it matter? What you think about this stuff? Like, if you don't find it interesting for its own sake, I just can't see the point. I guess that's why it engenders a kind of hopeless feeling in me in the way other philosophical subjects don't. It's like, well, look, I want to explain consciousness. I want an explanation of how the mind fits in with nature. And, uh, I just find that interesting in its own right it's a question i'm interested in but when it comes to political philosophy it seems like there's this pretense of like people should listen to us so that way the world will change and become better and i guess it's that pretense that kind of drains the life out of me and i'm just like i can't i can't participate in this like fantasy that i have political power so if you find it interesting for its own sake then good for you but um i'm not trying to stop you but like I just don't think that um, it really matters what I think. In that really obnoxious interview, Peter Hitchens was voicing how I feel, um, where he's just like, I can promise you that I have absolutely no influence over what the British government does. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I'm some vague type of socialist, you know, I'm influenced by anarchists, you know, like I've read like Daniel Gorin and Rudolf Rocker. And like I said, you know, Noam Chomsky kind of got me into this in the first place. Uh, Tyke asks, do you have any thoughts on naturalist metaethical views like Peter Railton's reductive naturalism or Cornell realism? Um, I remember seeing a video about Railton's view from Kane B, and I remember liking it at the time. Um, and this was sort of when I was I was trying to figure out what I thought about um, moral realism in a little more detail. And I, th- I think that was like one of the first things I watched. And... Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't really, like I said, I'm not really inclined to be a moral naturalist. I'm more inclined to be a moral non-naturalist. Like, I don't know, just somewhere in the course of learning about naturalism and then hearing the non-naturalist case, it's just the non-naturalist case clicked with me more immediately. Yeah, I just think that uh, there's like an obvious difference between descriptive and evaluative facts. And... Um, if naturalism were true, then I feel like moral philosophy would precede something a little bit more like science. And i that's just obviously not true. I mean, when it comes to like Cornell realism specifically, I don't have any thoughts. But when it comes to Railton's view, like, like I said, I remembered liking it. <laughs> but I guess it was just listening to subsequent criticisms where I just thought, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And I just kind of wandered away from it in the general direction of ethical non-naturalism. But yeah, I mean, I just think there's this hard distinction between evaluative and descriptive facts. And if you're going to try to reduce evaluative facts to descriptive facts, you know, I mean, it feels a little bit like trying to reduce phenomenal consciousness to like physical objects or something. Look, there can be multiple kinds of things. There's nothing wrong with that. The universe can be a big diverse place full of different kinds of things. Um, And I feel like the pressures that push people in the naturalist direction i just don't think you should care about those pressures like the kind of like oh we need to like unify everything to just be this one type of stuff or we need to like reduce everything why not just have some irreducibly normative truths what's the problem with that so like i think the pressures that push people towards naturalism like i just don't care about like i'm not persuaded by them um and i think there's this hard line between descriptive and evaluative and uh I mean, if there weren't, I guess one thing I would expect is for moral philosophy to progress much in the way that like science progresses. And that's just obviously not true. Yeah. I guess those are my, my initial thoughts about that. Um, SMDB asks, is incest wrong? Why? (laughs) Um, uh, I don't know if it's wrong so much as it's just gross. I mean, when I try to think about what's wrong with it, it's like, I mean it's just it's all related to things that are not intrinsically, you know, a part of the act. It's like, well, I mean, couldn't it lead to greater birth defects. And it's like, okay, well, what if you use contraceptive uh, contraceptives and also aren't there other things you could do that would lead to birth defects that are not incestuous? And it's like, so should those things be outlawed? If you think about someone smoking while they're pregnant, like that's not illegal, right? People just judge you very harshly for it. Um and uh, like, but would it be illegal for a doctor to prescribe something that causes birth defects? I mean, I don't know the law, so I, I don't know. But um, it seems like it should be against the law for a doctor to do that. That would at least be like criminal negligence um, if they were unwitting. But the thing is, I'm not talking about the act in itself. I'm just talking about like predictable consequences of the act. But like if you use contraception, contraceptives or something, it's like, yeah, it's just one of those things that's just gross and like you shouldn't do it. And it's obvious why like, why we would have the intuitions, you know, if it does predictably lead to birth defects or it leads to like some kind of social breakdown or something, it's obvious why we would have the intuition that you just shouldn't do that. Yeah. And impl- I mean, there are so many cases of incest that are wrong because like when you think of like, when you think of incest, if you're like me, the first thing you think of is Jonathan Haidt giving that like series of thought experiments to subjects, you know, and you're at, like, you, you're kind of like anticipate everything that people normally say, and then at the end of it, they say, it's just disgusting. So that's the first thing I think of, but maybe what you should be thinking of is not like some hypothetical case there, but you know the actual instances of incest that occur, which are probably older siblings raping younger siblings. Like that's probably, I mean, most of the cases of incest, the real cases that I've actually heard about personally, um, that's what it is. So I don't think that that's, I mean, hmm, is that right? Yeah. So like, if you're talking about most cases of incest where there's a risk of pregnancy, or it's like statutory rape, if not, you know, just outright rape, then um, there's no question. It's like, you have to invent like Jonathan Haidt did for this experiment. Like you have to anticipate like three or four objections to create this like scenario where you have like, two consenting adults who are using contraceptives and then never do it again and no one finds out about it. It's like, and you have to just stipulate that all that's true. I might even be forgetting a condition or something. And then it's like, okay, is it wrong then? And that's when people say, well, it's just disgusting. Um, So in that specific case, which represents probably no real cases, um, yeah, I can't really say it's wrong. I guess it's just gross. But in the vast majority of actual cases of incest, it is obviously wrong, but that's determined by like other features of the case more so than just the incest. Um, And, you know, other things that I haven't even mentioned, like betrayal of trust, you know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, the short answer is, yeah, it is wrong. (laughs) Um, But if you want to create some ethical thought experiment, and it does seem distinct from other things that we say are, you know, perhaps intrinsically wrong or like intrinsically impermissible or something like that. But yeah, in practice, in almost all cases, in almost like all real cases, yeah, it is wrong. Mendozum asks, when will you have some Mormons back on your show? I was just thinking about this, actually. I kind of want to have Joseph Lawal and um, maybe someone else on to like, you know, just learn some more stuff about like LDS theology and, you know, maybe talk about like Orson Pratt's panagentialism. He has a good video about that. Or maybe about the, are Mormons Christians debate? LDS philosophy also has a good video about that. Or maybe I was I was also thinking about like hosting a debate between like a Mormon and non-Mormon Christian. Um, or some kind of debate where Mormonism is on one side of it. Whether it's between an atheist and a Mormon or like, you know, a Protestant or Catholic versus a Mormon. Um, I don't know. But I mean, that's sort of what has been in the back of my mind or maybe i'll debate a mormon i don't know i mean i i did kind of mention when i spoke to Tariq that i wanted to make a case against theism that was more tailored to the kind of finitist uh like monotheism of lds so Uh, Maybe I should get around to doing that. Arthur Rodriguez asks, why atheist and not agnostic? If the philosophical content on the internet is confusing and not worth my time, where can I find quality philosophy that doesn't waste my time in some way? I think he's referencing a tweet that I posted yesterday where I said most atheist content online is just totally confused and not worth engaging. Um, You know, the same goes for apologetics content. But yeah, he says, if the philosophical content on the internet is confusing, not worth my time. Well, I said it was confused, but uh, where can I find quality philosophical content that doesn't waste my time? Well, I mean, the fact is you're going to find it more in writing than you are going to find it on YouTube. If you go back to that uh, question about my favorite atheist and theist philosophers, if you find stuff from them, it feels weird calling it content, but um, yeah, if you find stuff from them, then uh, that would be high quality. And uh, usually when they appear on YouTube, it's a high quality conversation, but Oftentimes it's uh, ruined by the fucking idiots who they talk to. But why atheist and not agnostic? I mean, the boring answer is just that I think the cumulative case against theism makes it more likely that uh, God doesn't exist than not. Um, but you know, I can feel myself becoming more agnostic about a lot of things as time goes on and uh, you know, theism's not exempt. If I were to just pick one piece of evidence, I guess it would be animal suffering over the course of evolutionary history. But it's not like I have like a, you know, my credence in atheism is like 0.99999999 or something like that. Um, I'm like closer to agnosticism than maybe like the average atheist, you know? Like I lean in favor of atheism being true, okay? So I don't feel agnostic because I'm not withholding judgment and I don't think the evidence is like counterbalanced, you know, for and against. But like, I think there is good evidence for theism And I just think there's better evidence against theism. You know, when I became an atheist and was like so convicted about it, there were just so many things that I hadn't considered. And, you know, if I were to convert, like I would not be claimed by the majority of Christians or anything. But anyway, so it's not as if like I was being totally irresponsible or something. Like you have to really dig deep in some cases. That in itself is a little surprising on the hypothesis that God exists and he really cares about you having true beliefs about him and about the true religion and all that. You know, like, why is it so hard? It goes way beyond seek and you shall find. It's like, why is it this hard? <laughs> like, um. anyway, so, you know, when I was watching uh, Majesty of Reasons, oh, by the way, speaking of like philosophical content, that's uh, that is worth your time. Um. I have a uh, section on my channel where I have, like, it's like philosophy of religion channels. Um, here, I'm just scrolling through now. We've got Thoughtology, that's Alex Malpass's um, Relay Theology, Naturalism Next, The Non-Alchemist, Crusade Against Ignorance, Secular Outpost, The Analytic Christian, Parker's Pensée, LDS Philosophy, uh, Josh Rasmussen, Dustin Crummit, Exploring Reality. Um, You know, there are others, but I'm saying that, like, there are, like, there's quality philosophical content on YouTube, even. And, you know, there are others I could mention, but, um, yeah, that's philosophical content on the internet that is worth your time. So, I can't sleep, so I'm going to answer some more of these. Um, if the answers are of a lower quality, it's because I've been up for a long time. I just get insomnia every few weeks. So, Integral Delina says... I've been reading this book called A Case for Necessitarianism that says nothing is contingent, everything is necessary. So the book doesn't have a twist ending. Um, If the book was right, it would be the end for both fine-tuning and psychophysical harmony arguments. Since they rely on metaphysical improbability, and in a world in which everything is necessary, nothing is improbable, since the metaphysical probability of a necessity, I believe, is always 100%. But the author, Amy, says that there are some necessary things that aren't caused. A causal and necessary? That seems like a contradiction to me. Here's why. What is the truth maker for X is necessary? Whatever makes X necessary. What is a cause for X? Whatever makes X necessary. These are one and the same, right? So either X is necessary and has a cause, or X is uncaused, and the proposition X is necessary is not true because it doesn't have a truth maker. So this is my question. Please tell me if I'm wrong about that. Can the proposition X is necessary have a truth maker in the absence of any cause for X? What would this truth maker be? How would it not be a cause for X? Thanks. Um... I uh, think I disagree with almost everything you said, actually. Um, So I don't think it would be the end for fine tuning and psychophysical harmony arguments, because I don't think they actually rely on metaphysical improbability. I think they rely on epistemic improbability. Um, So you can still, I mean, this is addressed in the psychophysical harmony paper, where they say, like, this is in the section against physicalism, because physicalism says, that the psychophysical correlations are metaphysically necessary and you know it's just a brute necessity totally unprecedented in nature no big deal but anyway they say it's necessary the point in the paper was that doesn't really undermine the subjective inference you know so if you're talking about epistemic probability then um you know we're talking about type b physicalists in this context so they grant that it's conceivable that we can switch around the psychophysical correlations and therefore they grant that it's epistemically possible that there could have been psychophysical disharmony and that should still i mean that leaves open the door for the argument so and the same goes for the fine tuning argument so the thing that helped me understand this point was actually talking about necessitarianism there was a there was an example in the preprint that said like okay imagine spinoza was right imagine necessitarianism is true the arrangement of the stars in the sky is necessary but when we look up at the stars you know astronomers make a discovery it turns out in the stars is written i am the lord your god uh repent and be saved jesus is lord or something so you know there's just some christian message in the stars astronomers make this discovery um would that not be evidence (laughs) for um christianity you know because The point is that it seems like it obviously would, and if someone tried to argue against that evidence by saying, like, well, look, necessitarianism is true. We all agree that necessitarianism is true, so that arrangement is metaphysically necessary. The odds of that obtaining are 100%, so I would not find that convincing, um, and I think the reason is that necessitarianism wouldn't undermine our ability to reason probabilistically, so uh, it's epistemically possible that these stars could have uh, not been arranged in that way, even if it was metaphysically necessary. So uh, that evidence should still be factored in, unless you think necessitarianism would like, literally undermine all probabilistic reasoning of all kinds. <laughs> uh, I don't think it would. And based on the way you phrased the question, I... Don't think you would go that far. The dispute would be over whether the fine tuning and psychophysical harmony arguments can run on epistemic probability or whether they need, you know, some actual like metaphysical contingency or else they can't work. And uh, I think that you could still run both of those arguments, um, even if necessitarianism were true, for the basic reason that necessitarianism would not undermine all probabilistic reasoning. So yeah, I mean, I guess the part of the psychophysical harmony paper that's most relevant to this would be the section on physicalism. But the author, Amy, says that there are some necessary things that aren't caused, acausal and necessary. That seems like a contradiction. Um, I think it's kind of weird that you think that because, you know, I mean, the examples of necessary truths that Seem like more common than anything concrete, you know, involve abstracta. Like mathematical truths are very plausibly necessary, you know, or like relations between universals or something. Like, you know, Platonists are talking about abstract objects, and it's totally standard to think that abstracta are a causal. So, I mean, a causal and necessary, that's just like standard Platonism. You know, I've read a grand total of zero things about truth makers, so I could just be missing something crucial in this argument. But just as an aside, um, I have never had much of an issue with necessitarianism. You know, I've wondered before, like, um, because Richard Dawkins gave this example when he was a kid, he said that he couldn't see why the internal angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees. And it was something he took grown-ups' word for. And it had to be like that because he couldn't see why. And, you know, he saw the reason behind it as he got older. But when he was really, really little, he couldn't see why that was like, why it couldn't be otherwise. And, uh, you know, I've wondered before if everything is like that, that really it's just like ignorance on our part that leads us to think that things are contingent and could be otherwise. And if we were given godlike intellects, then we would see that everything is as it is and it couldn't be otherwise. That's always seemed perfectly coherent to me. And I can't see, like, why does everyone treat necessitarianism like it's a bullet to bite? Why does everyone say, well, this would lead to modal collapse, therefore it can't possibly be true? Um, Yeah, I don't have like a strong sense that necessitarianism is absurd. It just seems like, you know, you could get something like necessitarianism by just ordinary determinism plus thinking that like the initial conditions of the universe are metaphysically necessary. Maybe if we had godlike intellects, then we would see why the initial conditions had to be that way and couldn't have been otherwise. So I think that's plausible. I mean, maybe there is like a beginning to the universe and the way things started off had to start off that way for reasons that we can't appreciate. And then just that, Plus, determinism, I think, gets you necessitarianism, and I just don't think that's that weird. Azimanez asks, As a panpsychist, how do you explain the following? Number one, psychophysical harmony. Do you, like Goff, go for panagentialism, or are there other options? And number two, causal closure of the physical. There is no gap for consciousness to exert any causal efficacy if the physical is causally closed. Seeing as you are not an epiphenomenalist from your last video, do you reject causal closure? Thanks. So to take those in reverse order, I am agnostic about the causal closure of the physical. I have no idea if the physical is causally closed. Um, the point I was making in that video is that you can affirm mental causation and like take either position on the causal closure of the physical. So I think in order to affirm causal closure and mental causation, I think you have to be some kind of monist um you have to find a way of like unifying mind and material and i think that rossalian panpsychists do that so i can affirm mental causation and say that yes consciousness exerts causal efficacy and the physical is causally closed and in fact some panpsychists are motivated by the causal closure of the physical i mean that's why some of them adopt panpsychism is because they want to affirm this consideration that often is you know appealed to in order to defend physicalism but really it's just a defense of monism and if you can find a convincing way of unifying mind and matter then you're all good so anyway panpsychists want to take what's going in favor of physicalism and what's going in favor of dualism and try to carve out a view that has the virtues of both and the vices of neither so This is one example of that, like panpsychists can affirm the causal closure of the physical. They can be uh, stunned into silence by, you know, the correlations between the brain and the mind, just like physicalists think we all should be, I guess. And they can also affirm the arguments for dualism, like the knowledge argument and the conceivability argument. So um, that's kind of the point, you know, is that you can, You can uh, have the advantages of both dualism and physicalism with neither of the trade-offs, or at least that's the thought. As for psychophysical harmony, do you go for panagentialism, or are there other options? So, um kind of do go for panagentialism. Goff's strategy, like he says, there's this push towards psychophysical harmony because there's this push towards the rational. And panagentialism is how you get this push towards the rational because conscious creatures are disposed to respond rationally to the character of their experiences. It's not the only option. You know, so like natural teleology, I guess, is the other one that I take really seriously. But I don't have like a really well-defined strategy for dealing with psychophysical harmony because... Um, I just keep learning more stuff about it as time goes on. So it seems kind of weird to like really uh, become like ossified in my response to it. So um, panagentialism is a good response. Um, I think theism is arguably like a less good response, even though it's probably like the simplest. I mean, it, it seems like it's the only solution where you've got like basically a one word answer where you've plausibly got a mechanism for bringing about psychophysical harmony and like a you know like a motivation for why that would obtain um and i I mean there are sort of different strategies for dealing with psychophysical harmony there's like the totalizing top-down strategies like god or panagentualism or natural teleology and then there are kind of bottom-up ways of dealing with it where you kind of chip away at the phenomenon um so you might you know, make an argument for semantic externalism that kind of chips away at psychophysical harmony. You might make an argument for the phenomenal powers view, and that kind of chips away at like some subset of hedonic harmony. Um, So you could kind of find different views here and there that would chip away at the problem, you know, maybe even just like one percentage point at a time. And it's more like um, death by a thousand cuts instead of like one top down thing that answers all of it. Like, well, We've got this omnipotent designer you know who plausibly has some reason for bringing about this valuable thing so i mean i definitely haven't explored all of the uh separate strands of the bottom-up approach you know um but yeah i mean when it comes to the top-down solutions i guess panagentualism and natural teleology are the ones that i think about the most but i don't have really settled views on this. So Noah says, "Hey Emerson, thank you for everything you do on this channel. It's been very helpful." Well, thank you. Um my question, if you have time, what are your thoughts on Immanuel Kant's transcendental idealism and potentially how it relates to free will? As i understand it, Kant's view is that while there is a real objective world out there, our subjective experiences of what that world um of that world don't represent it as it really is, and not just in a superficial way, like you see colors differently than me, but in a deep sense of space and time may just be subjective constructs of the mind. I ask because this view seems to afford a unique perspective on libertarian free will and consciousness in general. A transcendental idealist might say, consciousness and all its weird quirks emerge from some unexperienced part of the world as it really is. In other words, there is more to reality than the substances and laws revealed by science and human cognition our inability to fully understand consciousness and all related issues would be a limitation of our human perspective. The truth is out there, we just can't grasp it. Nice. If this is the case, there may be certain things like libertarian free will that are real even if we can never fully understand how they work. This doesn't guarantee that libertarian free will exists or is even possible, but it does seem like it opens the door for it, among potentially many other things. It also seems like it would discourage the use of human reason to explore deep or fundamental parts of reality, something many philosophers might be uncomfortable with. Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. This one part of your question, um, our inability to fully understand consciousness would be a limitation of our human perspective. The truth is out there, we just can't grasp it. Um, That sounds a little bit to me like Mysterianism. And you could be a Mysterian about consciousness, you could also be a Mysterian about Libertarian free will. I mean, I don't know anything about Kant, but I feel like he did have arguments for it, right? I mean, I guess you're not saying he didn't have arguments for it, but um, I thought he was, I mean, didn't he think it was like necessary for morality or something? But, you know, what you're saying about, well, maybe there's this underlying numinous reality. I mean, if you construe his uh, transcendental idealism broadly enough, then it's like, it's not at all unique to Kant to think that. Well, there's like something revealed to us by appearance that is different from, you know, its essence, or something that is revealed to us by physical science that is different from, you know, the concrete reality that underlies the structure that's given to us by physical science. Like, if you construe it broadly enough, then uh, it's going to be very widely accepted, first of all. And it, like, might not be best expressed in Kant. I mean, First of all, I can understand what Bertrand Russell was saying. um, And Kant seems to have inspired an infinite number of incompatible interpretations of what he was trying to say. So I mean, construed broadly enough, then what Kant is saying has been said by other people more clearly. And um, it arguably doesn't leave the way open for all this uh, potentially weird, mysterious stuff that you're alluding to. But I also kind of agree with what Schopenhauer said, where he kind of goes along with the transcendental idealism, but only so far because he thinks that um, mental reality is not numinous and it kind of is the thing in itself. And I think if we were to translate what he thought into more like contemporary analytic philosophy, then I think he would fully support like Philip Goff's um, transparency thesis. Um, phenomenal transparency. And I think you would agree with David Chalmers that, like, you know, phenomenal consciousness is the only intrinsic non-relational nature that we know of. And consciousness, I think, contrary to taking it as, like, this weird thing with a bunch of quirks that we're going to attribute to some unexperienced numinous reality, like, I think it is more plausible to take Schopenhauer's view on this. Which, let me just read what he said about it. On the path of objective knowledge, thus starting from representation, we shall never get beyond the representation, in other words, the phenomenon. We shall therefore remain at the outside of things. We shall never be able to penetrate into their inner nature and investigate what they are in themselves. So far, I agree with Kant. But we ourselves are the thing in itself. Consequently, a way from within stands open to us, to that real inner nature of things, to which we cannot penetrate from without. It is, so to speak, a subterranean passage, a secret alliance, which, as if by treachery, places us all at once in the fortress that could not be taken by attack from without. So I'm not sure if that directly answers your question, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there are parts of Kant that I wouldn't really want to go along with, and it seems like the parts that I don't want to go along with are the parts that you're saying would open the way for some of this weird stuff, or rather would open the way for this, you know, Mysterianism about libertarian free will or uh, consciousness or what have you. But yeah, thanks for the question. I'm sorry, I can't give a better answer, but I just don't know <laughs> anything about Kant's views. NitroAid says, what are your opinions on refuting beliefs when they are false, but mean so much to somebody? Obviously, in a debate setting, the other person is essentially consenting to their beliefs being challenged. But what if you simply believe that a friend or family member is entering more and more radically into something like Christianity? Um, for me, it's my family, and it undoubtedly has led them to do good things, which I do not believe require Christianity as their basis, as they seem to think, but their resulting beliefs are probably false, unjustified, and metaphysically radical. For example, there is a spiritual realm that gives power to and influences many things in the world. To what extent is it morally obligatory or justified to refute false beliefs? So, I mean, it sounds like you already know the answer to this, which is just that there's a time and a place, you know, and, um, when it comes to family, I think it's more important to get along than it is to uh, win an argument. I think it's more important to like, keep the family together. I mean, you know, assuming it's like an otherwise healthy family, you know, yeah, I think, I think it's just more important to keep the family together and to not cause strife and division pointlessly. So if you can have discussions about religion that are not like hurtful, or, you know, it doesn't, make people feel like they're personally being betrayed or something like that um then yeah that's fine but i'm just saying like you should you should not uh sacrifice like having a cohesive family um, just because it's like well they're wrong <laughs> and i need to i mean I guess i think most of the people who i love are wrong about a pretty long list of things but i mean i don't really care that much yeah i mean there's a time and a place and like i don't know what kind of family you have but for some families like it's totally a part of their dynamic to talk about like religion and politics and like that's totally fine and for others it's just not a good idea to bring it up but one thing that upsets me um that i see from coming from both directions um though usually it is the religious people in the mix who decide to, like, take, like, a principled stand, and they're just like, whenever you choose to stop believing what you're believing, then, you know, we'll love you again, but, you know, they're just like, yeah, uh, it turns out our love is conditional, you know, and that sucks, and uh, I'm glad that people in my family didn't do that. I'm glad that they chose, you know, loving each other and, like, having a family that was together as opposed to being like you need to agree with us about you know all of our religious views or else uh you know we're just we're just gonna have to be separate until then um so i would definitely try not to be the catalyst that leads to like some kind of division or separation or something so i mean if you just really need to um <laughs> uh, get something out of your system and you just really need to say your piece about something, uh, you could start a podcast. That's what I did. (laughs) Man, there was like, there's no better cure for me trying to talk to everybody about religion and philosophy and stuff than starting a podcast. Because now I almost never talk about it in my like work life, you know, like I'm capable of having friendships and relationships that are not based on, um, like just talking about philosophy. And I was not capable of that for, um, A few years, but like having a podcast and like just getting to say the things that were on my mind, and um, you know, believing that I had some things of value to contribute, and then I got to contribute those things, and I got you know positive feedback, and it it just kind of scratched the itch. And I I don't annoy the fucking shit out of people like I used to all the time, um, by talking about this in situations where people don't want to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, if you don't want to start a podcast, then you can uh just try to make it clear to them that you want to talk about this and you kind of want to have it out with them you want to like debate it but you still love them and you don't like reject them personally you know it's important to make that clear but yeah don't get too angry don't take it so seriously don't say things in anger um I'm just talking I mean literally I'm just thinking of mistakes I made and then being like yeah don't do that don't do that don't do that um but yeah I mean I don't think you are morally obligated to refute every false belief that you happen to overhear someone articulate um I think that if you are uh, itching to do that then you need to seek out the kinds of situations where it's appropriate to engage in a debate you know like if that's something that um, is just really in you that you, that you got to do, then I would just seek that kind of setting out. But uh, if it would be a problem to like bring it up at Thanksgiving, then maybe just don't bring it up at Thanksgiving. Um, Jeff Kane asks, is there any profound nugget of wisdom you would contend Christianity has first or exclusive ownership of? Uh, definitely nothing that it has exclusive ownership of, but being first. I mean, I would think that some of the teachings of Jesus were not really articulated in that way before him. I mean, I don't think that Jesus came along and like systematized stuff that was all there. You know, like I think there were novel teachings of his. I guess I would be surprised if a lot of people had been running around saying love your enemy prior to Jesus because um, It's such bad advice that um, I, just can't, I don't think it was probably that common. But um, yeah, there's definitely, like Jesus definitely said some original things. Well, I mean, obviously Jesus said novel things, but he's, I mean, Jeff specifically asked about nuggets of wisdom. I mean, Jesus's basic message to me sounds like, you know, radical forgiveness, you know, turn the other cheek and that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I guess... It's hard because I do admire Jesus as like a moral teacher, like overall, but like um, his uh, radical forgiveness is like too radical for me. But you know, I, I guess his kind of, okay, so Jesus's teachings. It seems like repeatedly you have a pretty strong condemnation of wealth. You know, you should give up your possessions. Um, you should help the poor. You should turn the other cheek. You should be pretty much endlessly forgiving. I mean, I know that's not in-depth. Okay, just calm down, everybody. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess his message of, uh, I, I mean, first of all, that particular combination of things is probably unique to Jesus. When I think about that thread of, like, radical forgiveness, um, I guess that is plausibly unique to Christianity, you know, first or exclusive ownership of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I'd have to say radical forgiveness even though um, I can't like (laughs) go as far as Jesus seems to advise but yeah the other Caleb asks what are your thoughts about the analytic continental divide Um, well look I'm interested in analytic philosophy and I am less interested in continental philosophy even though I'm not as negative about it as um, seemingly most analytic people are but uh, yeah, just I like analytic philosophy because it seems to emphasize clarity in a way that continental philosophy does not. So, like, I can tell what analytic philosophers are saying generally, and I generally cannot tell what continental philosophers are saying. So, yeah, I mean, continental philosophy is in general more frustrating to me, but um. I don't think it should all be thrown out or something. Like there are profound things that I've found in continental philosophy, um, like in the existentialists, for example. Um, but the thing is, like, why should every true and profound thing lend itself to like the mathematical precision that analytic philosophy strives for? Like the kind of rigor to use a favorite word among analytics, like why would every true and interesting thing lend itself to like (laughs) the kind of vocabulary that analytic philosophy uses. Like, yeah, maybe some true and profound things are hard to say and it takes a thousand pages to say them. Um, Why wouldn't that be true? So it's not like I think continental philosophy is like a heap of garbage or something. It's just, it's kind of frustrating to me in some ways because it's so unclear most of the time and there usually aren't (laughs) arguments (laughs) for (laughs) what they're saying. Um, there was this interesting um, interview with Michael Humer on Parker Spencey's about the analytic continental divide. And, you know, I like largely agreed with what Humer said, but I think he's just too harsh about the continentals overall. Um, So if you've got like a a spectrum here, like if humor is way over here, then like I'm definitely farther towards the middle. But like, look, I'm interested in analytic philosophy at the end of the day. Like 99% of the philosophy I read is analytic philosophy. I remember existential comics had this I think it was just a tweet where he said, like, the analytic continental divide basically comes down to math nerds versus theater kids. Like, (laughs) that that struck me as kind of true, actually, because you think about, like, Nietzsche, definitely a theater kid. Bertrand Russell, definitely a math nerd. But, you know, I mean, analytic philosophy can be so artless. Like, it can be so devoid of any aesthetic value whatsoever. You don't need to write philosophy like you're writing a fucking vacuum cleaner repair manual. You know, you can actually write well, it's not against the law. And Continentals, it's okay to be clear what you're talking about. By the way, just as a side note, as I'm scrolling through these comments, it's insane how many of you don't know how to spell my name, um, considering that it's the name of the channel. There's only one M. It's not E-M-M. Emerson. I mean, what the fuck? It's just... It's, it's never spelled that way. Okay, Majesty of Reason asks, question, if you could quantify the sheer depth of your resistance to God in acres, how many acres would it be? Um, uh, 69 acres. And then I'm reading the replies. It looks like someone beat me to it. Um, Hayden said, as a doxastic land surveyor by trade, I'd guess Emerson's resistance acreage, 69 acres that's a that's the same estimate i had um joe schmidt's resistance acreage one acre alex o'connor's resistance acreage 420 acres devastating and from majesty of reason again on a more serious note do you think the phenomenal powers view seriously weakens the psychophysical harmony argument why or why not so i mean i think it's important to note that there are multiple kinds of psychophysical harmony when you talk about psychophysical harmony everybody everyone always talks about pain pleasure inversion scenarios but that would fall under the category of hedonic harmony and hedonic harmony is only one part of psychophysical harmony there's also cognitive harmony there's epistemic harmony there's semantic harmony so i think that if the phenomenal powers view is going to do something to chip away at the phenomenon of psychophysical harmony, it's just going to chip away at hedonic harmony. I think that's all it would do. I can't see how it would help with the psychophysical correlations, okay? But like, when it comes to the phenomenal to phenomenal correlations, I feel like it does weaken the psychophysical harmony argument because it dramatically lowers the amount of ideally conceivable hedonic disharmony that there could be. So if psychophysical disharmony is not ideally conceivable, then obviously that would undermine the argument. Um, And I don't think it's just type A physicalists who can maintain that psychophysical disharmony is not conceivable. Um, I used to think that was it, but I've, you know, like I I mentioned this in an earlier question, there are just bottom-up approaches to addressing psychophysical harmony that kind of chip away at it just like one percentage point at a time and that strategy is like i said more death by a thousand cuts rather than kind of a top-down you know god or a panagentialism type of solution where you just kind of have this one thing that kind of supposed to solve it all i think the phenomenal powers view would successfully chip away at a subset of hedonic harmony. Um, so it would not seriously weaken the psychophysical harmony argument unless you think, you know, hedonic harmony is all there is. Because, yeah, I mean, how would the phenomenal powers view affect epistemic harmony or semantic harmony or um, cognitive harmony? But the thing is, it wouldn't even get rid of all hedonic harmony because, like I said, it, I don't see how it could affect the psychophysical correlation. It would just affect the phenomenal to phenomenal succession. So I know that Hedda Hasselmerk um, thinks it chips away at more hedonic harmony. We just talked about this briefly at, at the panpsychism conference where Philip Goff and Sean Carroll debated. But yeah, I think the Phenomenal Powers view is plausible and it does chip away at the amount of Um, you know, mysterious and surprising psychophysical harmony. I think if you were going to take this like multi-pronged approach to answering psychophysical harmony, that that should be a part of it. So John Buck asks, all right, we've we've got a really concise question from John here. If there is some first moment of time in which an organism is conscious, prior there is nothing it's like to be them. It became something it's like to be them. Would that organism be conscious in that first moment? or would they only be conscious in the second moment? Supposing consciousness requires at least two points in time in order to occur between them, it would seem that they could not be conscious in that first moment since the second moment would have yet to occur. But if they were not conscious in the first moment, it would seem they could not be conscious in the second moment either, since there would be no moment prior that they were conscious and no moment later in which they were conscious. If consciousness is not an intrinsic component to every state of affairs, I could see how it may require multiple instances of time in order to emerge from. But if consciousness resides at a fundamental level to all things, then even a necessarily initial state of the universe would have to have consciousness, even though there would have yet to be any additional moments of time for its consciousness to flow out of. For those who aren't aware, me and John have been arguing whether or not time is required in order for consciousness to exist. Like, could you have a temporal consciousness. Like, could you have experience and yet no passage of time? So I tend to think that you can't really have subjective experience. You can't have phenomenal consciousness without time. Like you need the passage of time in order, because I can't imagine like a truly quiescent conscious mind, you know, like it it seems like consciousness is always in flux there's always something happening, there's always something changing. Like when I think about my own case, and I think about it being like something, there's some kind of duration to every experience, you know, and when I try to imagine experience without duration, it's just very hard for me to conceive of. So depending on which view you take, you know, there are two kind of obvious things. I mean, first of all, you know, God is supposed to be this mind that is totally timeless, and plenty of philosophers have Argued that, you know, those two things don't seem to go together timelessness and consciousness. So that's one area where this becomes kind of important. And another area is panpsychism, because if you think that, for instance, time is not fundamental, then consciousness couldn't be fundamental if you think that you can't have consciousness without the passage of time. You know, another way of putting what I think is that consciousness is not the kind of thing. That can exist for no duration experience subjectivity it always exists for some duration to say that a conscious mind exists outside of time it just means there's like no duration to any of its experiences i I, mean, I think that's what it would mean and at that point i just don't know how it could be like anything um maybe that's just because i am constantly experiencing this stream of consciousness so it's just a failure of imagination on my part to imagine a different kind of existence where there is no stream of consciousness, but it's still like something. I mean, one definite area of disagreement, I think, is that, I mean, based on the way that John is phrasing this question, it sounds like moments of time are these discrete things. So I think that time is infinitely divisible. I mean, it just makes sense that, like, you know, however long you're thinking of, like, you could always just say, yeah, but what about half as long? Like, just take that amount of time, like that unit, and then just cut it in half. You know, you can do the same thing with space. Um, yeah, so I think that space is infinitely divisible. I think that time is infinitely divisible. So maybe I'm not thinking clearly because I haven't slept, um, and it's so late, it's actually early now. <laughs> but um, I, th- I would think that even if there's only one moment of time, you know, like the first moment, it would have to exist for some duration, right? Like, as soon as there's time, it seems like whatever arbitrary unit you want to draw a circle around and say, like, that's a moment, seems like you could divide that in half, and then you could divide that in half, then you could divide that in half, you could divide that in half. And I mean, as an aside, I'll just say that Zeno's paradox about like, well, in order for the runner to finish the race, first he has to run half the distance, and then he has to run half of that distance, then half of that distance. Um, it seems like, first of all, it shows that space is infinitely divisible, and second of all, you might conclude that we can complete an infinite series in some cases because space is infinitely divisible, and time is infinitely divisible, and yet we traverse from one moment to the next, you know, it was 3pm, and then it was 4pm, even though time is infinitely divisible. And even though space is infinitely divisible, we can still move from point A to point B. So seems like that means that we can complete an infinite series, at least in some cases, that doesn't mean we can complete any infinite series you could possibly think of. But sometimes we can complete an infinite series. So I mean, one point of disagreement between us, I think, is that I think time is infinitely divisible, and based on how you're phrasing this question, it doesn't seem like you would agree with that. But it's an interesting argument that you're raising here, because you're saying, well, you know, your view seems to imply that, you know, you it wouldn't be like something in that first moment of time, but then it also wouldn't be like anything in the second moment either. Um, but like I said, I think that because I accept the infinite divisibility of time, that like any any moment, including the first moment. Is going to have some duration to it, and my only claim is that consciousness is not the kind of thing that can exist for no duration. If I took time to be discreet, then uh, I think this would be a pretty good argument, but I don't. I mean, maybe I'm wrong that it hangs on that, but um, at least at this moment in the state of mind I'm in right now, <laughs> it seems as though <laughs> our disagreement hinges on whether uh, time is discrete moments of time are discrete or uh, continuous but you know time doesn't seem like it's a bunch of little lego blocks that we're putting together you know it's just a smooth continuum and you can always zoom in farther you can always take some unit and just chop it in half and then take that unit and chop it in half the non-alchemist asks if you became a theist again how likely do you think it would be that you'd end up as a christian theist as opposed to some kind of generic theist That's a really good question, because at first I thought you were going to say how likely is it that you'd be a Christian as opposed to some other religion? And it's like, well, you know, (laughs) obviously going to be a Christian Um, because that is the only way that I really know how to interact with religion. You know, that's the only way that comes naturally to me. And it's the only window through which I can really understand divine like if we're just talking about organized religions like obviously it's got to be christianity for me but you know comparing christianity to generic theism which is definitely more defensible like if you're just taking uh christianity and then shaving off all of the most specific least supported things i mean like look generic theism is more defensible than christian theism if you're just trying to like win a debate or something but the thing is like i would almost certainly end up a Christian theist. Why not just take advantage of the existing Christian structure that exists to pursue that, like just use Christianity as a paradigm to try to gain a better understanding of the divine reality, um, instead of just trying to do it on my own, which I could still do, by the way, but it's like, whatever was whatever would be available to me as a generic theist, I could still have available to me. But I would have more resources if I kind of chose to be a part of Christianity, even if I wasn't totally convinced of its more specific claims and I was just a generic theist. It's like, okay, this could still be a useful framework to put myself within. And obviously there's like just the community aspect. Like there are other reasons to be a Christian that go beyond like, well, I think it's plausible or something. It's like, well, Christianity obviously serves social functions, for us, you know, so I would want to be a part of a Christian community, not just any Christian community. I mean, like many Christian communities, I would want nothing to do with, but um, that wouldn't really make me unique among Christians. But uh, yeah, it's like, I would want to be a part of certain Christian communities. I would want, you know, leaders to uh, uh, teach me things, you know, I would want people to converse with, I would want to like, you know, like, if you join Christianity, there's like a place you can go at least once a week, maybe more in order to contemplate the divine and uh, the religious life and you know, whatever else they've got for you. (laughs) But if you're a generic theist, then it's all just on your own. So I think I would welcome the framework. Even if I didn't like explicitly affirm Christian theism, I would still de facto be a Christian theist. You know, I would want to draw from that tradition, I would want to take advantage of those resources because ultimately I would be some kind of like universalist, inclusivist, theist. So that leaves room for Christianity being special. It also leaves room for Christianity not being special, but still a perfectly legitimate window through which one can see the divine. So yeah, I don't know. Generic theism, obviously more defensible than Christian theism, but if I became a generic theist, I would still act like a Christian theist either way. So Zarla asks, what are your thoughts on finite theism? And do you think it's compatible with traditional religion? Um, Yeah, so I've I've hosted two debates about finite theism. And, you know, I kind of chimed in here and there with my thoughts about it. Like I think that it gives theists a non-moral way of diminishing the problem of evil. So I think that, um, well, I mean, take like Josh Rasmussen's analogy with different bowls and jars and containers on a table in front of you and you've got this picture of red liquid you know and the red liquid represents all the evil in the world and these different containers on the table represent theodicies and defenses and just different explanations of the evil in the world that theists have offered and you know there's no one container that's going to do it all but the idea is that maybe together they can all hold the red liquid that is in the pitcher, and maybe there will be a little left over in the pitcher. maybe there will be a lot left over which is my opinion but the finite theist has one more container on the table that the theist who believes in like a maximalist unlimited god does not have and further this extra resource that the finite theist has that the other theists don't have is not like a moral explanation of the suffering In our world which i think is an advantage because it is hard to morally justify a lot of the suffering that happens in our world um especially in nature so so i think the fact that they can offer a non-moral justification one that's just sort of logistical and based on god's limitations in power you know like human beings are not um culpable for the existence of cancer for instance because like we we can't get rid of it like you know, we're, we're trying, we're doing the best we can, but like, we're not like, it's not like, oh, shame on you. You know, you're allowing cancer in the world. It's like, we, we can't eliminate cancer, at least not at this point. Okay. Now imagine if we had the power to eliminate cancer, but we just didn't. And we said, well, look, there's a moral justification for allowing the amount of cancer that we see in the world. Um, What bullshit could I possibly say after that to justify the continued existence of cancer because like that's basically what theists have to do because god has the cure for cancer and he's not sharing it with anybody so just think of the the <laughs> it's hard to overstate the difference between those two situations and by the way another advantage of the finite theism side of things is that it's not incompatible with the moral justifications so if you think that like the standard theodicies and defenses are like you know, totally convincing. Well, it's not like, you know, that moral justification would vanish if you affirmed finite theism. You know, like that container is still on the table for you as a finite theist. But if you're a finite theist, you have a container that the other theists don't have. The fact that you don't have to fully rely on moral justifications for, you know, pediatric oncology wards, I think is a pretty big advantage. The challenge is obviously to come up with some kind of Model of God that is not just like totally arbitrary. What exactly are those limitations? Why do we have those limitations instead of slightly different limitations? So, this is all predicated on the idea that the finite theist can come up with a model of God that is, uh, you know, compelling. <laughs> but as to whether this is compatible with traditional religion, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, especially if you look at the Old Testament. Um, It's like, it makes for a more comfortable fit, you know, with some of the Old Testament stories. Certainly compatible with Mormonism. I mean, that's just standard for Mormons that they believe in like a finitist god. Uh, Speaking of Mormons, LDS Philosophy asks, top three philosophers who are wrong about everything. Uh, Me, I'm number one. (laughs) Um, Okay, top three philosophers who are wrong about everything. I mean, I can't really think of any philosopher who's like literally wrong about everything. sorry to nitpick, but like a philosopher who's wrong about like, you know, like I just strongly disagree with seemingly everything they say. Someone who comes to mind is actually Wittgenstein. Um, The way that people fawn over him versus what I've read, it's like, I just, I don't see why he's like as venerated as he is. So I guess he would fit the description of like great philosopher who I think is probably wrong about everything. Um, Richard Swinburne comes to mind because I mean, he's like undoubtedly a great philosopher, but he comes to a different position than I do on pretty much everything. But I mean, I think the one who's got to take the cake is probably Hume. I mean, David Hume is wrong about such an impressive list of things, but I mean, he's obviously a genius. And um, unlike a lot of philosophers, he's actually like a pleasure to read. But yeah, honorable mention Dan Dennett, I guess. His compatibilism saved him from being in the top three. Um, Jimmy Tucks TV asks, is it true that you just went to PragerU to be celibate with the co-eds and become a good religious con artist leader? Um, I was celibate with the co-eds at PragerU. I did go there just to become a good religious con artist leader. But your question was, is it true that you just went to PragerU just to be celibate? I mean, no, those are not the only two reasons I went to PragerU. This probably doesn't need to be stated, but I recorded my responses to these questions off the cuff. Didn't write anything in preparation. But for whatever reason, this question inspired me to organize my thoughts a bit more and write out my response. Can't really explain why. <laughs> um, just happened. So David Loves Yeshua says, First of all, thank you, Emerson, for opening up my mind to many interesting perspectives outside of the reductionist versus scientifically illiterate nonsense binary, <laughs> especially with regards to panpsychism and phenomenal conservatism. As far as I can tell, you don't really take moral anti-realism too seriously, which makes sense if and only if all the options essentially concede or try really convoluted ways of not conceding the Nazis were bad test. But I was wondering if moral subjectivism has more options than just personal and cultural relativism, plus divine command theory, of course. Specifically, my question is, what do you think about moral subjectivism with regards to humanity as a whole? Or to restate, something like, normally functioning humans as the collective observers morality is stance-dependent upon. It never made sense to me that any of you could end up with Nazism, or insert similar moral abhorrence, being morally acceptable, rather than at best a consequence of having some very important false factual beliefs. That being said, I just don't have any intuition that morality is somehow completely stance-independently objective. Torturing babies for fun equals wrong. Therefore, morality is stance-independent just seems like an unnecessary logical leap to me, and I'm not currently convinced of Platonism over Nominalism. If you get through all this, thank you very much for all the genuine, intellectual, and open-minded content. Hopefully I can become a patron at some point after I'm not broke. Well, thank you for that, David. Um, Okay, so the idea that normally functioning humans are the collective observers that morality constitutively depends upon, henceforth turbo subjectivism, is the view that when we say X is right, what it is for that to be true is that collective humanity approves of X. That's an initially more plausible sounding version of subjectivism than individual subjectivism or cultural relativism. But I think it doesn't really avoid the main problems with subjectivism. Most of the problems I'm going to mention can be refashioned to address subjectivism in other forms. So to use your Nazism test, consider these two propositions. One, humanity approves of killing all the Jews. Two, Killing all the Jews is good. So, on the face of it, the first proposition does not seem to lead us to the second one automatically. But that is the view under consideration. The truth of one is just what it is for two to be true. In our world, the following happens to be true humanity disapproves of killing all the Jews. Given the truth of turbo subjectivism, this is what makes it the case that killing all the Jews is bad. The badness or wrongness of genocide here constitutively depends on the approval-slash-disapproval of humanity collectively. And to me, this sounds like an implausible reduction of moral truths. And one obvious counterintuitive implication is that if, at some point, humanity's conventions should change in such a way as to endorse the mass murder of some ethnic group, we'd have to maintain that on that day, it will be morally right to participate in the genocide. So we should clarify a common point of confusion about the claim that moral realism is intuitive and anti-realism is counterintuitive. Since anti-realists routinely misunderstand what's being said here, we're not saying that an abstract, philosophically precise description of a realist meta-ethical view would make immediate sense to a non-philosopher or just sounds obviously right on its face to anyone who would understand it. We're usually talking about specific propositions that accord with different theories being intuitive or counterintuitive. Both a realist and a subjectivist can say, beating up a baby is wrong, but there are propositions and descriptions of states of affairs, like the Nazi test above, that are perfectly consistent with subjectivism, though not realism, that are extremely counterintuitive.
1: When I I defend moral realism, I don't generally just say moral realism is intuitive. Like I appeal to more specific intuitions, right? So you have things like, if most of society approved of torturing babies, would it be all right to torture babies? And like most people find it intuitive that you shouldn't torture babies even if most of society approved of it. Okay. And so, and so, you know, that's supposed to show that subjectivism is wrong. And then, you know, like, hey, is it false that torturing babies is wrong? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> it doesn't seem false. So that's supposed to refute uh, error theory, right? And then, so, like the the particular versions of anti-realism are incompatible with some specific intuitions that are pretty widely shared and pretty firm you know like like you should be able to test it by you know just like taking statements that are that that view implies should be good statements and then seeing how they sound right like some of them sound wrong right so if it's an individual version of subjectivism then like you know compare so if I approved of torturing babies, then it would be okay for me to torture babies. And so that seems false. Like it doesn't sound true to me. I'm not an, I'm not an egomaniac. I don't think that me approving of torturing babies would make it all right. Well, that's, well but that's insane. But the, it's not that it wouldn't, but it would, I guess they would agree that it doesn't make it like objectively right or something, but if we're, for if we're how, if how we're well, but, what right is no, I'm not, you say I'm it. not inserting objectively into the statement, like I'm using all right in the ordinary English sense, whatever that right. is, right. right? And then we just found out that, it is, that the ordinary English sense of all right is not a subjectivist notion.
0: So here's a perfectly reasonable question. Humanity approves of it, but is it really good? However, on turbo subjectivism, utterances like that would be a sign of confusion, but this does not seem confused at all. Just as I can know that I believe something, but still have doubts about whether it's true, I can know that I approve of something, or humanity approves of something, but still have doubts about whether it's good. That's consistent with realism, but it doesn't make any sense on subjectivism. Hence, realism is the intuitive view in this instance, and the anti-realist view is counterintuitive. Keep in mind, we're not arguing here that intuitions matter, just that anti-realism really is counterintuitive. So here's another counterintuitive implication of the view. Humanity, the collective of normally functioning adults, is morally infallible. The approval of humanity is what it is for something to be right or wrong. So anything endorsed by humanity is automatically right. Together, we cannot be wrong. Moral truth is guaranteed just by our approval. So, humanity is morally infallible is another example of a proposition that accords with a particular anti-realist theory that is very counterintuitive. Again, this is what realists typically mean when we say anti-realism is counterintuitive. Moral disagreement poses another potential problem for this view. What is moral disagreement on the view that normally functioning humans are the collective observers that morality constitutively depends upon? Take two people who disagree about abortion. What exactly are they disagreeing about? According to the theory, they're only disagreeing about what the conventions of humanity actually are. Does collective humanity approve of abortion or disapprove of abortion? But whether people approve of it is surely not what abortion debates, let alone all moral debates, are really about. That would be quite a discovery. If you and I disagree about abortion, we're not just debating descriptive facts about polling data. And in a similar vein, the view implies that we can make moral discoveries just by making discoveries about polling data. If you went into a coma for five years, and upon waking you found out that humanity now fully disapproves of abortion, it obviously doesn't follow that you also found out that abortion is in fact wrong. Yet, according to The View, you found out both at the same time. You undoubtedly found out that everyone disapproves of abortion, but there's still a huge gap between everyone disapproves of X and X is wrong. You can also easily imagine gaining a bit of moral knowledge without knowing anything about the status of humanity's approval yet another objection to this kind of subjectivism is a euthyphro style dilemma with respect to the conventions of humanity as humor puts it why should we obey social customs either there are good reasons for the customs that is reasons that show the customs or the behavior they endorse to be good in some way or there are no such reasons if there are such reasons then at least some evaluative facts exist prior to the customs. If there are no such reasons, then the customs are merely arbitrary rules. And why should we obey arbitrary rules? End quote. So I have a question about moral disagreement. Humanity doesn't universally agree about abortion, or certain cases of genocide, or owning other people as property. Does that mean that those things aren't wrong, or are only partly wrong, or what? Is consensus required for turbo-subjectivism? Maybe some problems could be avoided by constitutively grounding right and wrong in an ideal collective of humans, or perhaps one ideal observer. We could develop an ideal observer theory and say that right and wrong are constitutively grounded in this observer, that what it is for X to be good is for X to be approved of by such an ideal observer. So this is roughly why Humer considers Railton's ideal observer theory to be a form of subjectivism as well as divine command theory. At the end of the day, I think those are the most plausible forms of subjectivism, even though, A, that's not saying much, and B, plenty of people would push back on that classification. But the reason for such a classification is that a substantive question is in front of us. Subjectivists maintain that morality constitutively depends on an observer or observers. They're giving a particular kind of reductive account, that shares important similarities with other reductive accounts. If someone believed moral properties were reducible to facts about rocks or something, but they called themselves a subjectivist, I would still not consider them a subjectivist. And likewise, if you don't call yourself a subjectivist, but you reduce moral truths to an observer or observers, I do consider you a subjectivist, regardless of what you call yourself. According to Turbosubjectivism, love that name, when we say X is right, What it is for that to be true is that humanity, collectively, approves of X. For the reasons above, I don't think this is a plausible, reductive account of moral truths. So I decided to take your question as an opportunity to make a bunch of arguments against subjectivism. And some of you listening will complain that a lot of my case just boils down to the fact that subjectivism is counterintuitive. And to that I say...
1: You're goddamn right.
0: Alright, so we are at the final question. Um, There were some questions that were submitted a little bit after the cutoff point, so just hang on to those for the next AMA. Um, But yeah, we've got the last question here from Agonized Candle. They say, are you afraid of death and how do you cope with death anxiety as an atheist? People often use the Mark Twain quote, I was dead for billions of years before I was born and I wasn't troubled, but the 14 billion years since the beginning of the universe was only a finite amount of time and it was eventually followed by life. But after we die, our non-existence will continue forever. How can an atheist live with the terrifying reality of eternal non-existence? Death anxiety was one of the main reasons that I decided to take Pascal's wager and convert recently. I never understood how other atheists were able to face death without becoming nihilists. Thank you for your great content and sorry for not being succinct to my question. Well, so much for ending on a high note. Thanks a lot, pal. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, just on that one argument... Well, not argument but just the the thought that life is meaningless unless you never die um I don't agree with that um I mean the idea that you could somehow make life meaningful just by never expiring like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me um you know life could be meaningful and we die life could go on forever and it would still be absurd like those are both possibilities you know it seems like you could live forever and it would still be Be meaningless you know like if your life is meaningless now why would extending it through eternity make it meaningful Thomas Nagel in mortal questions talks about this um, this kind of argument for life being absurd that so many people seem to find intuitive it's often remarked that nothing we do now will matter in a million years but if that is true then by the same token nothing that will be the case in a million years matters now In particular, it doesn't matter that in a million years, nothing we do now will matter. Moreover, even if what we did now were going to matter in a million years, how could that keep our present concerns from being absurd? If they're mattering now is not enough to accomplish that, how would it help if they mattered a million years from now? So that's in the opening of the absurd mortal questions. Check it out. first philosophy book I ever owned right here. But yeah, that makes sense to me. Like if nothing we do now matters in a million years, then by the same token, what's going on in a million years doesn't matter now. Namely, the fact that nothing we do now matters in a million years. If their mattering now isn't enough to accomplish what you're looking for, then why would mattering in a million years change anything? It just seems so obvious that things matter now. Like, if this next meal is good or terrible, or if my relationship is in a better or worse state, or if I'm in excruciating agony or not, like... I can think of things that matter to me right now and you're not going to talk me out of you know it mattering to me whether or not i'm happy or in pain or whatever um this essay from nagel is actually also the first time it dawned on me that chains of justification end somewhere (laughs) which has all kinds of applications yeah just this idea that like well look stuff matters there's a chain of justification and eventually it just bottoms out and like some kind of brute fact of mattering. So like if you're trying to explain action, I think this is the example he gives. Like, why are you going to the cupboard to get an aspirin? Why are you getting an aspirin? Well, to stop my headache. It's like, why are you trying to stop your headache? And it's like, well, that's the point where the question starts to sound dumb. Like, do you know what a headache is? <laughs> like, You know, you might not know why I'm going to the medicine cabinet. You might not know what aspirin is but once you understand what a headache is then it just makes sense that you would want to stop it like it matters to you to stop it like pain is intrinsically bad once you understand what it is you have reason to avoid it you know if you say yeah yeah yeah, but why do you want your headache to go away it's like you're either an idiot or you're asking a very deep philosophical question (laughs) maybe those two are not totally distinguishable all the time i don't know but yeah i mean nagel actually writes really well about this kind of thing but other things i've leaned on um there's this famous quote from andrian andrian who um was talking about carl sagan's death she was carl sagan's wife and um she just wrote uh i think she was just speaking but she just spoke really beautifully about that and i've just returned to that again and again over the years also i guess mortality By Christopher Hitchens you know especially when I was first like in the deconversion process it's been a while since I read it but just the concept of a man writing a book about his death while he's dying that he didn't finish that itself it's like an intriguing project in and of itself even without the um kind of religious element to it but if I had to pick one book I guess it would be man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl like that's the one that I've leaned on the most also occasionally the gay science by Nietzsche, which has almost like a scriptural quality to it. And occasionally, uh, you know, Sam Harris talking about gratitude or, you know, so like you can find this kind of thing in Waking Up, which is a great book. And also just in different clips online. But what can atheists say, you know, that's as comforting as the Christian story? Nothing. There is nothing that anyone could say that's more comforting than... So, you know, imagine that you just lost someone. You know someone has died and there's one person telling you death is an illusion that person who you're missing you know who you're grieving the loss of they're actually not dead they're exactly as they were more or less um nothing happened actually like there was just kind of this superficial transition and yeah everything's fine nothing has fundamentally changed okay so what can anyone say that's going to be as comforting as that i mean there's no story that we're going to tell that's going to be as good as Well, in fact this whole death thing is not real it's just an illusion i mean graham Oppy brought this up in his conversation with alex o'connor it's like if you're disposed to argue like jordan peterson which i'm not but if i were you know you could use his own style of argumentation against him so peterson says things like well you say you're an atheist but your actions betray you because you're not a rapist murderer so That just proves that you're not really an atheist because wouldn't we all be rapist murderers if God didn't exist? I guess that's how he thinks. So it's like your verbal behavior of saying I'm an atheist doesn't count. You know, that doesn't reveal what you really think. But um, you not constantly stabbing people, just you're going through the grocery store. And as you're, you know, putting things in your cart, you're just stabbing everyone along the way that reveals that you really do believe in God. Hoppy pointed out that there's this article by George Reyes who said that, like, well, Christians are very sad at funerals. <laughs> like, they think that their loved one has not died. They're, I mean, I mean, maybe in a very superficial way, but they're still alive. You know, they're in this resort, basically. They're in this happy place, much better than Earth. Yet, they seem so sad. They should be happy for them. They, I mean, first of all, they're going to be reunited with them in the blink of an eye. And second of all, they're in a wonderful magical place and it's like their behavior doesn't seem consistent with that at all so if you're disposed to argue like jordan peterson then you can say oh you're a christian who believes in the afterlife well pretty sad at this funeral (laughs) now like i said i am not disposed to argue like that um i do this weird thing where i take people at their word for what they say and you know if they think something and tell me that's what they think i um believe them it's really odd it's a weird quirk i have but nobody knows what happens when the physical brain dies um consciousness is publicly unobservable so it's not like we can check um yeah we like we can't just observe what happens um but yeah the, the physical brain dies what happens to consciousness i mean there's no shortage of ideas that people have but i think when it comes to you know dealing with death as an atheist I think people just have totally limited imaginations about this. They think like, well, you know, you're an atheist, so you must think X, Y, and Z. Like, you must think that experience ends completely when the physical brain dies. Because that's the, I don't know, the theology of atheists, I suppose. But, you know, atheism is just the lack of belief in God. And I've always said that. No, I mean, atheism is, you know, it's, a, it's different things to different people. But it's it's really just like a negative position on one Thing. I think it's the belief that God doesn't exist, or, you know, for most people, that God probably doesn't exist. I know that people use religious mechanisms, I guess, to explain how it is that we live after death. But first of all, you can believe in a soul and not be religious. You can believe in a soul and be an atheist. And if that sounds just confused, like that's just contradictory, then it's like you are so steeped in just contingent cultural categories that you can't understand like the concepts that are in front of you the concept of a soul is just an immaterial substance that interacts with the physical body it's like oh well if you don't believe in God how can you believe in an immaterial mind that makes a difference to the physical body and the physical body makes a difference to it it's like what what are you talking about like what do these two things even have to do with each other other than the stories that people who believe in God often tell involve a soul okay well the stories that people who believe in God often tell involve electrons too I mean does that mean I can't believe in electrons well most people who believe in electrons also believe in God okay so you can believe in an immaterial component of personal identity in the mind as an atheist there's no contradiction there there's not even a tension there there's literally no conflict whatsoever you can so it's like the soul is the most important part of believing in the afterlife I mean if you believe in a God, then it doesn't matter what your philosophy of mind is, because an omnipotent God can resurrect the dead. Like they can, um, did I just use they them pronouns for God? God can uh, raise the dead even if physicalism is true. So, I mean, like if there's an omnipotent God and he promised an afterlife, then it doesn't matter what philosophy of mind theory happens to be true or if none of them are true, because God can uh, ensure an afterlife you know but if you're an atheist then there are just different options you have available to you like Michael Humer believes in reincarnation and he's an atheist or pretty close to it either agnostic or atheist oh death as an atheist okay so how does Michael Humer deal with death as an atheist I don't know how he feels about it but I mean he does believe that he'll be reincarnated I guess that's part of how he deals with it as an atheist (laughs) So, and you know, I mean, I'm fairly agnostic about the afterlife. There just seems to be so many options, you know, for us to continue existing. Like, there are just so many possible ways it could happen. And because I'm like not sure how consciousness fits into nature, I just can't be certain or like anything approaching certain about what happens to consciousness when the physical brain dies. I don't know that experience will end. I mean, I can work out the like implications and entailments of different theories. So like, I can be sure that if reductive physicalism is true, then experience comes to an end. I can't be sure that if substance dualism is true, one thing happens or the other. I mean, maybe the soul is annihilated upon death I don't know. Like substance dualism could be true and there could be no afterlife. You know, if dualism is true, that doesn't mean I'm going to go to heaven. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be reincarnated. Like you just, you have to actually like think through these issues. You know, it's not obvious what the answer is, even if you start just, okay, for the sake of argument, let's accept substance dualism. Let's accept panpsychism and think about the implications. How, you know, what happens upon death if panpsychism is true? Like, the answer to that is not obvious you know i mean sometimes you can work out like okay on this specific version of panpsychism here's what happens but like different versions of panpsychism yield different answers yeah i mean ultimately i am agnostic about the afterlife i mean there's only one way to find out for sure and uh i will someday and so will you so will everyone who's hearing my voice right now i just remembered there was um a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris on the one side and David Wolpe and Brad Artson on the other side where they're talking about the afterlife. And um, that was an interesting debate. And Hitchens was also dying when that was happening. With respect to your question, it's like, well, how do I deal with death anxiety as an atheist? Well, I mean, like I said, I'm, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to cease to exist um, it seems likely to me, if I'm being honest, because wh- when I'm saying I'm agnostic, what I'm agnostic about is whether consciousness continues after death, but that doesn't really answer the question or doesn't like take a strong position on personal identity. So I'm saying the way that I exist in some sense is probably going to cease to exist. But arguably, I've already done that like a million times in my life, where like in that like thinner sense of me it's like okay well in that thinner sense i have already died many many times so i'm not sure it's really a big tragedy so it does seem fairly likely that i will in some sense cease to exist but perhaps in a broader sense like my stream of consciousness might continue i don't know that's something i really can't be sure of one way or another. And it's not just that I'm not just like a skeptic about certainty, because any reasonable person is a skeptic about certainty with this. I I mean, I literally don't have like strong feelings one way or the other about whether my consciousness will continue in some form after the death of my physical brain, because it's consistent with panpsychism, it's consistent with dualism, and it's consistent with mysterianism. And those are my three favorite positions in the philosophy of mind. Those are the three most plausible positions in philosophy of mind, as far as I'm concerned. I see some evidence of an afterlife, you know, but it's not strong evidence. You know, I I really do need to look into near-death experiences because I kind of took a cursory look at it many years ago made a podcast episode, but I haven't really dug deep into these cases. And, you know, it's just, it's so frustrating because everyone assures you that there's something here, that there's like a there there. And whenever you look, it's pretty underwhelming. (laughs) Like it's, I've never been knocked off my feet by things I've heard. And, you know, every time I have heard something impressive, it is just, it's so obviously unverifiable, you know, like just so it's like, well, look, if that's true, then that's pretty interesting. But it's just like, let, let me give you an example. So I was listening to Capturing Christianity because there's this NDE documentary that came out and he had the director on the channel. And um, the director says, like, point blank, he's like, these experiences, like, they don't happen to Muslims or Hindus where it's like they're. Uh, you know, their religious views are kind of, like, confirmed or something like that. He said people see a bright light, or they see ancestors, you know, family members or something, or they see Jesus Christ. But that's it. Those are the three things people see. You know, Hindus don't have experiences with Vishnu, like, Muslims don't have experiences with Allah or Muhammad or something. And then someone sent in the super chat, and they said, uh, you're a liar. Like, I can verify that there are Hindus and Muslims who have exactly the kinds of experiences you say they don't have. And the director folds immediately and says, well, yeah, sure. That may be true, (laughs) but, (laughs) but you can't verify that these experiences happened when they were clinically dead. Okay. Like he's like, well, we can't verify that they were clinically dead when those experiences happened. What? Okay. So, like, I mean, first of all, if that's the standard you want to introduce, then the most impressive NDE stories for Christians go out the window. And that was affirmed by the other guest that was on Capturing Christianity, um, who who appeared in the movie. He was like a cardiologist. And um, he says that, like, yeah, there are spectacular stories, but the medical record on what happened to them is like sparse or non-existent. And he's like, when you look at the most impressive case that actually has like extensive medical records that go along with it, where doctors and nurses are meticulously taking notes about what was happening, um, you know, then he he talks about that case. And in terms of the uh, level of spectacularness of that case, it's very middle of the road for like what you hear. But he just went with the best case that has like the most evidence supporting what the claims were in the nde case but anyway i just this is what i'm talking about when i say every time i look into ndes i am not inspired to look further like there's this director of this nde documentary and he's like i converted because of ndes and then he just gets caught straight up lying about ndes that they like uniquely confirm christianity he's confronted about that lie he immediately admits that he was lying without really admitting it and then invents a new criterion that he didn't mention (laughs) that he obviously doesn't apply to his own like anyway I'm just saying there that kind of thing or like some other similarly discouraging thing happens every time I look into NDEs where I'm like why am I wasting my time like it's either the most spectacular story you've ever heard with like nothing that would help me as someone who's just reading about it really believe them (laughs) like anyway I'm still going to look into NDEs in a little more depth but I'm just saying every time I've looked into it, I have not been inspired to continue looking into it. The kind of evidence that religious people will offer of an afterlife, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It's not that there isn't a range of quality of NDE cases. You know, some of them are hard to explain. And when you look at the kind of attempted reductionist explanations of the higher quality cases, they strain credulity. So I'm not saying that like, of the evidence that religious people typically offer of some kind of afterlife that it's all totally dis like we can just dismiss it and not you know think about it at all but of what i've seen it's not that there's no evidence it's just it's underwhelming especially when you think about again people just have a really limited imagination about this there's a lot of unexplored terrain yeah and this is part of why jl Schellenberg, i think is one of the great atheist philosophers because he you know at, at the conclusion of the hiddenness argument he starts talking about ultimate reality and he almost starts sounding like a mystic or something talking about the nature of ultimate reality and at least alluding to that there's all this space that's just unexplored you know and i think the same is true of consciousness in the afterlife and so on so just to return to the original question of like dealing with death anxiety it's like well it's not like i have a set view on what happens after death. So it's not like I'm sure that when I die, the lights just turn off. That's definitely what happens. Now, when I was more certain of that, I didn't really have death anxiety. I was pretty happy just to be alive in this moment. And um, things matter now. And uh, I just, I wasn't that bothered. Like I'm, I'm, I feel like I work too much, but I'm having a good time overall. yeah, I just, uh, it didn't really bother me. I was kind of like an Epicurean about death. I didn't think that death was really bad at the end of the day. And I don't really have those views now, but I, I'm just saying when I was younger, I just, I didn't really have death anxiety as an atheist. Um, And I, I'm i relatively way more afraid of death now than I was. I don't know why that is, but I'm just more afraid of death now and i would love to not die i do not believe atheists who say they don't that they want to die basically i mean i'm you know exempting people who are suicidal and have mental health issues i'm just saying like otherwise mentally healthy atheists who say oh i wouldn't want to live forever that is equivalent to saying i want to die so i'm not suicidal so i don't want to die <laughs> i don't understand why people say they do want to die jeez i wouldn't want to live forever that seems like a very plausible example of cognitive dissonance you know just the classic the fox can't get to the grapes and says I didn't want them anyway they're probably sour it's like well you think you can't have eternal life so you say well it would suck anyway actually it would be terrible to live forever you know what's terrible dying though I will say something that I I would sooner become one of these atheists who's just totally in denial about the badness of death than one of these uh, like techno dorks who is like i'm gonna upload my mind to the cloud and then they're just like they have such bad death anxiety that they they just they literally deny their deaths and they say well why can't human beings live for 10 billion years you know just with better medicine and why can't i upload my mind to the cloud okay uh good luck with that i wish you the best and um you know that to me is just infinitely more pathetic just like Deluding yourself into thinking you're going to upload your mind to the cloud. Like, I I don't deny that AI could be conscious, that computers and robots, or whatever, could be sentient, could be like something to be, some artificial silicon thing, whatever. But like, that's not going to be your consciousness. That's going to be like maybe a qualitatively identical AI or something. But like, that's not you in the sense that you care about. You are still going to die. Your point of view is going to come to an end, and someone else's which is qualitatively identical to yours is going to begin there might even be overlap which you'd think would make it very clear that you're not the same like the teletransporter case where it's like you're transported to this other place but then you don't die right away and you see them over there and you're like that's not me and then you die and then you're vaporized in the chamber or whatever um you'd think that's when people would finally realize emerson was right (laughs) but they still don't even when you put it to them like what if instead of being killed instantly when you step into the chamber, you are killed a few minutes later and you see yourself, you know, exiting the other side and you're like, wait a second? <laughs> I'm here. And then you get vaporized. And oh in that moment, you'd think it would become clear that that's not you. And obviously it would become clear if that actually happened. I th- I refuse to believe that people can't see that I'm right about that. If that actually happened, you would see that I was right. You'd be like, wait a second, that's a clone of me. And even though a clone is me in many important senses, it is not me. Anyway, moving on from things that I'm obviously fucking right about, um, death. Is it bad? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, why would it be bad to die now? I mean, one reason is that you're missing out on a future of value. So I can't think of a time when it would be good to die, assuming there's a future of value ahead of you. Um, If it's going to be a low quality, I mean, people have really obvious objections to this, like, oh, but what if it's a horribly low quality existence? It's like, well, then it might be good to die because you don't have a future of value in front of you. But assuming that things can continue, you know, like this, more or less. And, uh, the quality of life is decently high you're reasonably mentally and physically healthy the environment is not like hellish then like i can't think of a time when i would want to die so yeah eternal life i mean you don't have to live your entire eternal life at once it's just like one moment at a time like you just continue doing this you know except you can do everything you can do everything that you're capable of doing so i mean i do have death anxiety. And when I do feel more assured of my uh, demise, you know, in every sense, then I lean on those those things that I mentioned, you know, kind of like the books and even just passages that I referenced. But the fact is, we just don't know what happens when the physical brain dies. Though I just, I keep returning to this because I don't want to make light of the point. Like, I do have death anxiety. I am afraid of death. I do not want to die. (laughs) And I was significantly less afraid of death when I was sure that there was going to be an end. So I don't know if that's related. You know, I, I don't know if it's like, as I've become more agnostic and not just a certainty skeptic, but like actually kind of agnostic about what happens after death, I have become more afraid of death. And maybe it's like that kind of cognitive dissonance that I mentioned of like, once you think you can get those grapes, then you might sort of be like, wait a minute, they're probably, they might not be sour. Um, So I don't know if it's like, if it's that, just like the possibility of an afterlife has made me more aware of the badness of death. But then again, I know people who are relatively certain that when they die, it's all over and they have horrible death anxiety. And I know people who believe they're going to live forever in paradise who have death anxiety. I don't want to draw any kind of essential connection between this or that metaphysical belief and this or that view or attitude towards death because i think it's plausible we all just process these things differently you know maybe there is you know this wet, this like totally intelligible web of um beliefs like if you have this combination this is always what happens but um i don't think it's as simple as i believe there's an afterlife therefore i feel this way i don't believe there's an afterlife therefore i'm going to feel that way so yeah i guess i deal with death anxiety differently depending on the day i either try to find the meaning that's here, or I uh, try to tell myself, well, you know, there really is a possibility that things go on in some form. Yeah. I mean, back to that point about the lack of imagination or like the the weight of like these cultural categories that are kind of imposed on us, like, well, atheists believe this and Christians believe that. The fact is you are radically terrifyingly free as an atheist people act like there are constraints and it really bothers me that they limit themselves and they limit their freedom you know i just feel like atheism could be a million times more interesting than it actually is you know the atheist community can just get really boring because they all think so similarly you know they don't really explore the question of the afterlife you know in all it's like they don't really traverse the uh, conceptual terrain there you know they just kind of think for sure that they kind of know what happens, even if they kind of make some noises to be like, oh, well, no, no one knows for sure or whatever. They are obviously pretty sure about what happens when you die. It's so boring. You can just predict what they're gonna think about every issue just from the fact that they don't believe in God to me that just makes no sense like why can i predict what you think and what you're going to say about like a whole range of issues just because you don't believe in god i mean it like feels the same as how you can predict that someone is anti-gun control based on the fact that they're pro-life i mean what's the connection between those things or you know pick any seemingly unrelated issue that is obviously connected by political tribe but not by any like you know any obvious rational connection you know i mean atheists are no less immune to that And that's how they end up with such a predictable set of beliefs, I think. That's at least part of the story. But yeah, just like Schellenberg with ultimism, you know, how we haven't really explored most of the conceptual terrain when it comes to the nature of ultimate reality. I don't think that we've really thought about everything, anything close, like everything there is to think about when it comes to how consciousness could exist in the natural world, like all the ways that that could be and all the implications that that may have for the afterlife and you know the existentialist stuff that i was talking about earlier that i you know can often find myself leaning on when um you know i am like anxious about death it's like that existentialist stuff is valuable regardless of how you feel about death so with that um i think i'm going to conclude this ama yeah that was a lot of fun um we will probably do it the next time we hit a big milestone <laughs> like the 7,734 subscriber special or something like that. But yeah, thanks for watching. Um, I guess if you're not already subscribed, do all that stuff. Uh, Give me money, money now, money please, money now. Money,
1: money me, money now, me a money needing a lot now.
0: Patreon.com slash counter or slash WaldenPod. I think I also have like a Venmo or something if you just wanna do a one-time thing. The reason for that by the way is because even though the overhead for podcasting is like about as low as it could get, it's not zero. And it's just nice to, you know, have that stuff covered. And also just the more that I get from that, the more I can take off of work and spend more time doing this. So, um, which I already do. I mean, I work four and a half days a week because of patron money. So the thing is like, you know, a weekend and like a half a day is not enough to really release a lot of content on a regular basis, but it's enough to, Give me like a little window where i can work on in every week um so that's why it exists so it can like keep happening um but if you can't afford it or anything then like there's no pressure money now so with that thank you for listening i've been emerson green and i will see you next time